Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today and you can learn the secrets of the force and don't miss our oral history of star trek in stores now and of course nobody does it better the complete oral history of james bond in digital hardcover paperback and audio that is all Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And this is the Trexperts holiday special exciting finale conclusion. In fact, it is part seven of our six-part series of (laughs) holiday specials. Yes, indeed, you heard right. It's part seven of our six-part series having gone uh, consistently over. This was planned as a three-episode holiday special from Christmas to New Year's. And in fact, we've outdone ourselves even last year's mon- monstrous uh, TV countdown uh, with the seven part, uh, uh, many, many hours of um, uh, top 101 sci fi. But I have to say, it's been extremely gratifying to see the feedback from our fans on social. We continue to invite you to continue the conversation. Um, I think one of uh, my favorite uh, comments was um, the viewers who are, are, are looking at movies they've never seen before. Uh, just today, someone tweeted, and I apologize for not having your name handy, uh, that they watched When Worlds Collide for the first time All right. and loved it. So uh, so if, if nothing else, we've accomplished something good in the world. And, More fans uh, of Zyra. 
and I want to, uh, and I, I know fans have have uh, have sought out a lot of these films, so that's great. And I want before we continue, I want to welcome back our um, uh, our our inglorious Trexpert holiday special pickers. Um, we have with us from the Burnett Network, Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett is back. It's a great honor to be with you, fine fellows. This this extra extra episode, and uh, joining us uh, from uh, his uh, hiatus uh, from his Netflix. Uh, uh, hit series, Dota Dragon's Blood. It's Ashley Edward Miller. Guys, I have to tell you, um, there's a thing that's been haunting me since uh, these started dropping. And it's a, it's actually, it's a review of the podcast um, that uh, that's on the, the, the Apple podcast site. And the review begins thusly. I could listen to this forever. And I feel like... <laughs> With this holiday special, we are making someone's wish come true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's. Uh, it, I think it's exceeded all our expectations uh, in terms of how how long it's gone. Here we are, uh, deep into 2022. Um, and this is a solid audiobook. This is <laughs> it certainly had the virtue of never having been tried. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed. But we've definitely uh, thrown down the gauntlet for uh, next year. Um, as uh, I don't know, we started in February. Well, we're gonna have to at this rate. So, um, and uh, you know, a couple other people have have weighed in with their opinions. I know one uh, one one of our listeners was saying, if altered states is not on the list, I'm done with you guys. Um, Oh well, you're gonna have to learn (laughs) to live with disappointment, I suspect. Um, but uh, we'll see, we'll see, because we are in our top ten of our 101 greatest sci-fi movies of all time. I want to remind our listeners that. To be eligible for this list, it can't be a horror movie. It can be a horror movie with sci-fi elements like The Thing, um, but it can't be, you know, uh, Michael Myers or something like that. Uh, also, no fantasy. So you won't find Lord of the Rings or superhero films on this list. Um, and uh, just strictly uh, sci-fi movies. Um, by the way, has everyone seen Spider-Man? Yes. No. Indeed. Oh, uh, Darren hasn't seen Spider-Man at this no, juncture. No, and I worked on it. So, oh, you know. well, they- Great. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I, I wish that uh, certain other franchises could do what um, Kevin Feige did so effortlessly. I with hear that it's film. great. It is great. Um, although, you know, my uh, my my son and I now have a scale for rating movies. It's on a scale from Eternals to Spider-Man No Way Home is oh. the uh, is the new rating scale. Oh. For films. <laughs> I don't and, approve. And how do you I rate uh, how do you rate your Star Trek, Ashley? Uh, oh wow, man. Um, gee, I mean, the the truth of the matter is that like there are things that we agreed we simply wouldn't talk about like on this podcast, but like that goes from what from that thing uh, all the way up to uh, to really just Star Trek two. I can tell you how I rate my Star Trek from where no man has gone before to Turnabout Intruder. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair. You know what? Fair. That's why okay. I rate my Star Trek. Well. When we last left the countdown, we had just uh, number 11 was Forbidden Planet. Uh, Darren extolled the virtues of that sci-fi classic uh, to uh, to us. And uh, we're going to continue with Ashley, who's back. Speaking of an unleashed id. Yes. Um, so coming in at uh, number 10 is a film that dared to ask a very simple question. Sarah Connor. 
Uh, I am referring uh, to the original, The Terminator. In this city, under cover of darkness, someone is stalking Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor? Yes. Sarah Connor, 35, brutally shot to death in her home. You're dead, honey. What's this? Dead girl, too. Sarah Louise Connor. Is this right? Of course, we'll have more on this late-breaking story as it comes in. She doesn't know why, but it's her he's after. Did you reach the next girl yet? No, I keep getting an answer machine. Pick up if you're there. I'm really scared. I think that there's somebody after me. And no one can help her. Except for one man. I'm Reese. It's a sign to protect you. You've been targeted for termination. This isn't true. How could that man just get up after you did? It's not a man. A machine. Terminator. Underneath it's a hyper-alloy combat chest. Microprocessor controlled. Fully armored. Very tough. But outside it's living human tissue. Cannot make things like that yet. Not yet. Not for about 40 years. Are you saying it's from the future? They came to fight. For the one woman who could save their future. And this uh, computer thinks it can win by uh, killing the mother of its enemy. came to protect her. I came across time for you, Sarah. The other to kill her. Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator. Inhuman. Relentless. Unstoppable. He has only one purpose. Murder. Can you stop it? I don't know. And now Sarah Connor's world has become a battlefield. With her at ground zero. And the Terminator closing in. An adventure unlike anything you've ever seen before. Arnold Schwarzenegger is... The Terminator. James Cameron's coming out party in uh, in so many ways as a director. And I, I feel almost silly attempting to recap this movie because if you don't know that it is about a uh, cyborg from a future where an AI called Skynet has taken over the planet, coming back to kill the mother of the savior of humanity before he can be born, then I don't know why the hell you're listening to this podcast. Well, apparently you should just watch Demon with the Glass Hands. That's true. At least like if you're- How did he win that? I have no idea how he won it. It's totally silly. The the Um, worst lawyers of all time were defending that case, apparently. Oh my God. It just like, it just the, the complete ignorance that are just, just associated with that. Like we're referring to, of course, is Harlan Ellison, like claiming credit for it because Harlan Ellison. Um, 
But look, I've, I've extolled the virtues of this, this film on, on many occasions. Um, you know, it's just, it's so well written. It's so well directed. It's just, it's a beautiful story. It's uh, the casting is, is perfect. Michael Bean is just great. He's so human. Um, yet you believe him as an action hero, which is so important when he's up against Arnold Schwarzenegger, who really like, like if there is anything, I, I think that cemented Arnold as, you know, as a, as a presence, right. As a pop culture presence, it was probably this film. I, I think clearly, you know, he was a thing, um, you know, it was, you know, he was Conan, he was all that good stuff, but but uh, it was the Terminator that we so strongly uh, associate him with, um, all the way up to calling him the, the governator. But in particular, in the context of this podcast, what I'd like to point out is um, how this movie really, it told us something about who James Cameron was going to be, uh, the, the kind of director he was going to turn into and why it's important. Because right now the man is finishing up five freaking sequels uh, to Avatar, which was fine, okay, film. It was good, okay? Um, it was hugely expensive. Uh, but the thing that you can say about Avatar is that for the most part, I think um, the movie was all there up on the screen. The Terminator is the opposite of that. It is not an expensive movie. This is a movie where Jim Cameron's experience um, with the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking uh, really came into play, where he got so much out of so little, where he leaned on the drama, um, he made the effects that he had and the space that he had to, to, to create action scenes really work and make them really effective. Um, he has just this terrific science fiction idea that is that is at the heart of this thing. Um, it makes excellent dramatic emotional use of the idea of a time paradox. And it has the best explanation of how a time machine works that you'll ever see in your entire life. And the explanation very simply is uh, a cop interrogating uh, Kyle Reese, asking him how the time machine works. And Kyle Reese's explanation is simply, I don't know, I didn't build the fucking thing. Boom, you got it, it's, it works. Uh, it's great, it's cool, um, it's got a great score. Uh, and dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Exactly. And it spawned uh, the brilliant Terminator 2 Judgment Day. It spawned a bunch of crappy film sequels. And it spawned uh, my, my, uh, my, the second best creative experience of my life, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. And if you leave it up to me, like it's, it's just that and Terminator 2 and the Terminator. But, but, it's, but nothing is anything uh, without the Terminator. You know, one of the things that I, I love about this film and so many movies that came out in the 80s is that you had emerging filmmaking voices who really understood how to employ visual effects on a low budget. They really knew how to use practical effects, live action, and combine it in such a way that if this movie were made for $100 million, I don't think it would be much different other than the fact that maybe some of the effects would be a little bit more elaborate. Well, it but, was. It's called Terminator 2. Well, of, of course. But I mean, in terms of, of the, 
you, yeah, but you don't need any more effect shots. This movie does exactly, basically also what the original Star Trek did was it used effects in such a way that it really told the story without allowing effects to become the reason you're watching it or to overshadow the drama. Well, and it really is a, I mean, obviously this is really James Cameron's real film debut as a director. I mean, Piranha 2, The Spawning, okay. But this, this <laughs> yeah. is uncut Cameron. And I remember seeing this film for the first time and just being knocked out by it in 84. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, you're seeing something where you, seldom do you see real unfettered talent that is so apparent just oozing off the screen. And, you know, he, like you said, Ashley, doing the effects on Escape from New York and Galaxy of Terror and, and all the things that he learned uh, allowed him to do this. And I don't know if there's ever going to be another filmmaking voice that we're ever going to see emerge the way Cameron did with Terminator. Cameron has always been a superlative storyteller above all. Yep. And he makes use of whatever resources he has to the fullest uh, extent. And uh, even even, you know, when he does gigantic uh, budgeted films, uh, everything is there. Like you said, everything is on the screen and everything is made uh, proper use of. There's no extraneous stuff. There's no uh, there's no garbage. There's no there's all everything is is working towards uh, advancing the story. And that the Terminator itself is a an amazing example of that. There's yeah. not a wasted scene. Yeah. I mean, at literally every single scene propulsively pushes the plot forward. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I told this story in the 430 movie, but uh, I remember seeing the film in 1984 at this shithole theater in Boston, uh, my freshman year of college, I think it was. And um, and there were all these rats scurrying around on the floor. And I don't like rats, but I stayed and watched the whole movie <laughs> because um, it was awesome. <laughs> and I came out of that movie and I'm just like, Wow, I've seen the future of science fiction, and it is James Cameron. And speaking of James Cameron, that brings us to number nine, number nine, number nine, and another James Cameron classic, Aliens. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Are you ready? Yeah! yeah. Are you ready? Yeah! Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Get on the ready line, Marine! Get down the die! Get on the ready line! Nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get them out of there. They cut the power. How could they cut the power, man? They're animals. 
five meters, man. Four. Aliens. This time, it's war. Now, Aliens is amazing because it's a sequel to one of the great sci-fi horror movies of all time by from Ridley Scott. And you would think, you know, there's not a great history of the sequels working out, uh, particularly Alien was not a movie that begged for a sequel, nor was it a, such a huge hit that this, it demanded a sequel necessarily. But James Cameron delivers because he takes what was great about Alien and his love for the genre and um, and and makes a movie in the vein of Godfather 2. Not that uh, it's about the Bob, but that it takes what's great about the Godfather and 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 tells the story in, an, in a completely different way, and um, and deepens your appreciation of the original. And that's exactly what Aliens does. If Alien was a haunted house in space, Aliens is um, you know men on a mission. And when I say men, I don't literally mean men because, of course, the real star of this movie, besides the Queen, Alien Queen, is of course. Sigourney Weaver, who is remarkable, as is uh, Lance Henriksen, and uh, of course, Michael Bean. And uh, as I'm sure Rob will tell you about, one of our great, most favorite sci-fi film festivals is Sigis in Spain. Uh, and I'll never forget, uh, one year I was the, I was uh, arriving at Sigis, and the car came to pick me up and uh, to take me to Sigis from the airport. And they said, oh, this is other guy, and his car didn't show up. Would you mind if he uh, bummed a ride with you guys? And I look up and it's Michael Bean. I'm like, no, I think it's okay. Michael can come with us. It's, it's, <laughs> it's fine. So uh, you can come with me if you want to live. Exactly. But, uh, but um, it was, um, Aliens is just a spectacular movie. And it kind of is that, that great decade of 20th century Fox genre movies. I remember I saw it at a, a screening, uh, press screening before it was released. And I was listening to a radio uh, show about movies. Joanna Langfield had a show in New York talking about, oh, Aliens is coming up. It sounds like just another you know, cheesy sequel. And I, I've never done this before. I called up the radio show. It's like you know the original podcasting for you kids out there. And I said, <laughs> Joanna, I got to tell you, I saw Aliens last night. And you're all completely wrong. It's phenomenal. It, it, it's just a, a, an inspired work of art. And what's so fantastic is, there are two great versions of this. There's the theatrical version, which is wonderful, and the director's cut, which is also wonderful, uh, which was uh, first introduced to the world on Laserdisc, to all us Laserdisc junkies. And I don't know if I necessarily have a preference because I, I think they're both great. I think it depends how long I want to spend watching the movie. I do. I, um, I, uh, <laughs> I think that it, ultimately, if I had to put a gun to my head, said I could only keep one, I would keep the theatrical because I actually think that the that the opening on uh, on the planet with the colony and all of that, like, just is a killer. I think it was mm. I think it was wisely cut mm -hmm. from the film because it actually also undid the moment when you found Newt. Yeah, um, that's true. I and I but I think but there is good stuff home. from the from the yeah. director's cut that I would hate to lose, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's that. Yeah, there, there's some really great moments later on when the pressure cooker cooker is cooking, and um, 
that that they lost, but um, that that isn't in the um, theatrical version. But you know, as far as the theatrical version keeping the running time manageably unmanageable, it definitely is 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 uh, the, the right version. And it's just a spectacular movie. It's so innovative in terms of giving. Uh, I was going to say the board giving the aliens a queen, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, suddenly instead of one alien being this menace, that you know, it's it's multiple aliens. And what they did, you know, what he does with Sigourney Weaver's character, who's confronting, you know, her long dead daughter in the theatrical version. Um, it's really, um, uh, you know, and, and wrestling with that and, and, and the reluctant hero. And of course, Paul Reiser, who was a staple of pop culture and kind of things like, um, you know, we've seen him in Diner and then he was popular in Mad About You. But really, he's so well, great. After, as after the, Alien. After this. Was it yeah. after? Was yeah, it, it was after. So great as the wormy corporate uh, executive who'll say anything, Burke. Uh, yeah, Burke, to get her. Uh, it was a bad call, Ripley. A bad call to get you know say or do anything to get her to go on this mission. I have to say though, Ashley, I really do like the the director's cut because I love seeing the horror of of the face hugger around the father's neck and Newt screaming, and then when you go to the colony, Hadley's hope. And you've seen it as this bustling colony. When you see it completely decimated, it's almost more horrific in a way. And the the sense of dread, because you've seen it as a bustling colony, shake and bake colony, and then to see it destroyed when the Marines go in is, you know, I think for me, I'm like, that's scary. I think either version is good. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, that was like, my point. Yeah, yeah the, the, the thing with the Cameron is, and it was what you guys were, were saying before, it's that, you know, every scene that he puts into his movies, is, for the most part, propulsively move the film forward. And the thing that I think we have to give him credit for that maybe we don't talk about enough, right? Because usually when we're talking about director's cuts, it's very strange. With director's cuts, it's like when they're putting shit back in, but we never talk about director's cuts as like moments when they take shit out. Um, and there is something about Cameron and his willingness to just cut these things, right? Like cutting that scene uh, in Hadley's Hope, uh, in Terminator 2, cutting a scene where uh, Kyle Reese visits Sarah Connor in a dream in the hospital, um, or the, you know, the, the shot but not uh, inserted ending of that film that's set in the future where John is a senator or some crap and Sarah is an old lady and she's talking about it. But, but having the discipline to have shot things and deciding, you know what, like maybe I should just get rid of that and make the film better. Well, there's an right. expression in filmmaking called kill your babies. Yeah. And Cameron is exceptionally good at killing his babies. And divorcing his wives. <laughs> okay. Well, they say there's no comparison, but I'm sure Darren's about to make one at number eight. Back no. in the 70s. Ten years was an awful long time. And there was ten years between uh, the end of the run of the original Star Trek series and its rebirth as a new life form in the uh, cinematic realm for December 7th, 1979, the birth of Star Trek, the motion picture. 
human adventure is just beginning. William Shatner. Take us out. Is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei is Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Major Barrett is Dr. Christine Chapel. Walter Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya. Roddenberry's production of a Robert Wise film. The first of many films of the original series crew. And if I'm not mistaken, this was kind of the first time that a basically a reboot uh, film was made using the original actors. Um, I don't think that there was any instance of that. I mean, the the Batman movie uh, made in 1966 was was made at the same time, so it was exactly the same crew and uh, at the same time. So, but going back ten years later for these characters and and having a big sprawling, vast science fiction movie based on this uh, TV series that had been gone for so long, and uh, fandom had. Uh, really hungered for something new and something a continuation of their love for star trek and uh fandom was never bigger than then for the original series and man i'll tell you i i looked at uh uh fan magazines and uh you know starlog and uh various uh, magazines offered in the scholastic book club and uh and saw little hints of what was coming and i the first time i opened up uh this i think it was bananas magazine and it had a picture of the enterprise from the uh, uh back three-quarter view and i went oh my goodness it's it's like looking at the real thing it's the real ship that we saw that was just represented by a model on the tv show and that that amazement that i had has never changed for the 40 some years that uh, I first saw the movie. Um, I loved it from the beginning. And uh, I, I dove in, I saw it, I think the first week it was open, I saw it three times. And then various times later, uh, both in theaters and on home video, it was, uh, it was a 
a big contender for uh, a, a big release that Paramount put out on home video at the time, uh, a few, few years later. Um, it was always a big, sprawling, real adult science fiction movie. And this hadn't been attempted before, ever. And I, I know a lot of people uh, would, uh, you know, uh, tease fans of the film saying, oh, it's the, it's the motion sickness, it's uh, Star Trek, the motionless picture. Well, these people are wrong and they have short attention spans and they need to uh, get off the uh, speed drugs uh, because the, the beauty of Star Trek, the motion picture, is that it takes all the seriousness of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and it weaves it into the fun of Star Trek. And yes, there is fun and there is humor in this movie. And there are some great character moments that if people would just sit and watch it and not be babies about it, they will see. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. Sorry to take your line, Ashley. Um, this movie is an adult adventure. And you have to watch it with that mindset and the child in you will enjoy seeing all these miraculous uh, uh, scenes of going through mysterious strange uh, unknown places and seeing things that no one has seen before and actually feeling like you're being taken into outer space and going on an adventure and you are with friends and but the thing is that our friends are in different places in their lives in this film. They are not where we are used to seeing them, especially at the beginning. Uh, they have all basically moved on in their lives from the comfortable situation of the original series, and they need uh, various stages of change to happen to them to bring them back into alignment with themselves and each other. And it's a miraculous uh story to watch and it's as i've as i've uh, learned more and more about the production of this it's even a more miraculous story of how it even got made at all um the the behind the scenes is at least as interesting as any story told about hollywood um everyone was at each other's throats no one knew what was going on it was a wild unbridled production and only a few people were able to bring it together to provide a semi-finished movie back in uh, 1979. And it's miraculous that anything got done. Um, I've been lucky to work on this film twice over the past uh, 20 years, uh, working on the uh, director's edition that we did in 2000, uh, that was released in 2001, and, uh, and uh, in 2021 to be released in 2022 so um it's uh it's very close to my heart and uh i've uh, been able to be through two stages of its development and uh, i've loved all of them so well, you, you know i gotta tell you i think right now a lot of our audience is saying how is it that uh star trek 2 the wrath of khan was number 14 and star trek the motion picture is number eight well the reality is, as much as we adore and love Star Trek II, and you could probably argue it's the most entertaining of all the Star Trek movies, we're doing a list of the greatest sci-fi movies. Yeah. It's motion pictures. It's not just about what's entertaining. It's not just about what's fun. 
Not the easy it's questions. A, it, it's the about what is a great movie. Yeah. And I think we've all said this in some form or fashion before. Star Trek The Motion Picture is the one picture in the Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek uh, uh, a movie oeuvre, which doesn't feel like a really big two-hour episode of the TV series, but like a movie. Yeah. And it, it has the scope. It has the themes. Uh, it has the big ideas. And um, it feels big. And it feels epic and it grapples with big questions. And as Darren said, it may not be your cup of tea, but we feel that for a little countdown of great sci-fi movies, the motion picture towers above the other films. I also have always maintained, despite many people's protestations to the contrary, that Star Trek, the motion picture also feels the most like the original series does. The other Star Trek films, even Star Trek Two, is a riff on naval combat, right? You know, kind of the same way that Balance of Terror was a riff on submarine combat. Whereas Star Trek, the motion picture leaned the other direction. And I've always thought that there are many different kinds of Star Trek episodes. And I, I loved my sort of cosmic threat. I love the immunity syndrome. Mm -hmm. I love the doomsday machine. These very dark, serious, brooding episodes. Sure. Star Trek is almost like a great anthology show with the recurring cast. I mean, you can have funny episodes or whimsical episodes like Shore Leave and a piece of the action, but the cosmic infinitude and the threats that come from beyond our understanding, even something like, I dare, I, I'm hesitant to bring this up, but the alternative factor, you know, there's weird oh, stuff. Oh, God. There's, I know. Stop him before he kills again. It's all but, the question of how our characters deal with the unknown. Absolutely. And at the same time, I've said this a million times, but I'm going to say it again. We see our three characters. They're all miserable. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are not in a great place. Yep. And Spock has failed. We've never seen Spock fail before. Not like this. He failed to achieve becoming the ultimate Vulcan because he's not. Right. It was the very first time where Spock was, instead of trying to be Mr. Perfect Vulcan, he realizes in this story, and it's profound, especially in the director's edition, that emotion is necessary. That pure logic is not the way to go through life, son. Well, you know, you need, Rob, you need something more. It's also um, what Kirk says to Decker in the Doomsday Machine, we're stronger with you than without you. And basically, the Star Trek family is stronger together than apart. You know, Kirk, Spock and McCoy, and it's been said before, you know, the id, the superego, the ego, they're, they're one in the same and they work together in unison. But when you tear them apart, they they don't work as well. Yeah. Oh, so I'll be the one. I don't know if I'm really a dissenting voice here. Um, I think I'm more uh, the uh, the I guess I would say the devil's advocate. Right. Because obviously that's like, not eligible I, for this list because it's a right, because it's, devil. A, it's a horror film. Um, no, I, uh, look, I'm, I'm obviously very much on record in this podcast of like, of loving Star Trek the motion picture. Um, I, I think that, that in extolling its virtues, I think we're being a bit reductive about some of the other films. I think in particular with, uh, with Star Trek two, um, to me, like I would, I would agree that in terms of this list, this is probably properly placed in terms of where the Star Trek films fall, but Ironically, if we were to just do a list of Star Trek films, I, I think almost unquestionably for me, I would put Star Trek II ahead of that. 
And the thing that is great about Star Trek II, even though we've already talked about it, is also what's great about Star Trek The Motion Picture, that it is kind of Star Trek at its best. It's not just a, a riff on naval combat, Rob. You know, it is, it's an excellent movie about characters, about conflict, about and growing mortality old. And facing, and, you know. Ex- and making mistakes and like, and the things that we kind of responsibility. Behind, you know, it's all of those things. It's like, it's huge, it's rich. Like what it doesn't have um, is, and it makes up for it. What it doesn't have is what this movie has in spades, which is what I think elevates it in terms of this particular list, which is that epic scope. It was a scope that was denied Star Trek II um, I, because they just, they didn't have the, the money for it. Oh, it was so, produced under the aegis of the TV division for exactly. very little money. I, exactly. I, I would say that what Star Trek II, uh, for all of the great things that Star Trek II has, you know what it doesn't have? It doesn't have space, the final frontier, where this baseline. this does. This has this has an unseen, godlike right. machine intelligence that is. I, I've always loved this about the movie that that somewhere out there, there was a, a, an incredibly advanced, technologically unbelievable. We can't even imagine civilization that found something we sent out, and said, "Huh." All right, I'll bite, you know, and they sent it back to us. It, it's it was there. It was their sort of Valentine letter to humanity. Oh, here, we found your broken piece of garbage. We fixed it for you. Yeah. If, if only it had been in, you know, intercepting episodes of Gilligan's Island. Well, I don't I don't even think it was damaged. I think they found this thing and they're like, oh, isn't this nice and primitive? You know, and 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 and, you know, they made this thing that would grow. And and as it accumulated more knowledge, it probably became I don't think they launched V'ger as in its final form in what we see no, in the film. No, I agree. I you know, agree. It, it was growing. And it it, it was gained built. sentience on the way. Yeah, and also it would add to itself. And yeah, and, and people are always saying, well, Rob, you know, it's just like the Changeling. And I'm like, no, it's it's yeah, no, really not. It's not. It's, I, I mean, that was about uh, about our, our technology colliding with an alien technology and the resulting hybridization. Uh, the Changeling yeah. to me is more of a Frankenstein story yes. than this is. Absolutely. You know, and, and and this is more of a in a way it's 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 our first contact with 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 an alien race. And then the end of the movie is the final result of what that contact uh, what what happens yeah. where mankind is able to fuse with this with this alien race. It's, and it's, it's the it's ultimate the creation of this. It's the creation of the singularity. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, Ashley, I, look. I actually agree 100% with everything you said. You know, I think why this is higher on the list than Star Trek II, you, you, you said scope. Yes, that's one, certainly. You know, I always point to when uh, the the um, shuttle pod lands on the cargo bay and there's actually people running around right. in the ship and it feels big and fast and yep. there's these cars you can get lost in. It feels like a ship, you know, not like a bridge with a couple of elevators, yep. turbo lifts. So, um, but I will say this, um, I think what they just said is, is true as well. This is a movie that culminates, spoiler alert, with two humans needing to meld with a living computer to achieve sentience and go on to the next higher plane of existence. This is a big sci-fi idea. And, uh, you know, 
Star Trek Two uses the trappings of sci-fi, terraforming, and uh, you know Genesis, but it, it's about humans, humanity, right? This is about the big sci-fi idea, and as a result of all those, I think it's why what you said, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, would be higher on our list of great sci-fi movies. Where if we were doing strictly great Star Trek movies, Star Trek Two might very well be number one. Yep. So there. So there. So there you have, <laughs> and then that makes me think. Cold fish, sushi. That's what Rob <laughs> Burnett's ex-wife called him. So number oh, seven, she would never call me that. I'll tell you that. <laughs> number seven, Rob Burnett. Well, I have to say that um, obviously, the summer of 1982 was a very, let's call it a watershed moment. The the promise of of 70s dystopian sci-fi films that led to things like Star Wars and then Alien. And and fantasy films and everything sort of within the space of two months, you had everything from Conan the Barbarian to The Road Warrior to Tron to Poltergeist to Star Trek II to John Carpenter's The Thing. And then there was a film that I think everybody was excited about. We'd seen coverage of it in Star Wars or Starlog magazine. And of course, it had Star Wars Harrison Ford as uh, some kind of a detective. It was based on Philip K. Dick's novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And, uh, you know, I was expecting kind of a slam bang action packed Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones romp, which had been the thing he'd been in the previous year. And I went and saw the very first show of this movie in Seattle at our Cinerama theater. It was in 70 millimeter and there was a special new sound system with extra added bass that Warner Brothers had created for this film when it was released. And I went in. And I watched it and I'd never seen anything like it before. And it was, of course, Blade Runner. I need your deck. This is a bad one, the worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three male, three female. They slaughtered 20... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen a buzzlove. What I didn't know was they were looking for me. Questions. I just do eyes. Just genetic design. Just eyes. Hello? I'm in a bar here now, down in the fourth sector. Why don't you come on down here and have a drink? That's not my kind of place. <gasps> Time to die. If I didn't pay. 
than words can say If I didn't care Would I feel this way If this isn't love Excuse me, Miss Salome, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> you for real. if i liked it i i was dazzled by everything i saw the opening shots the visuals the vfx vangelis's music i mean everything that was going on in this film and i knew at the end of it there was something very profound the the the, the question that it it talks about like many of the great any movie is the idea of what does it mean to be human and and what does it mean to live a human life and and it asks that question through replicants who are artificial. You know, they're created by human beings. And is it possible for a, a human being to create another life form with a soul? And if so, what is our responsibility there? Is there a responsibility? And is it possible for artificial people to teach actual human beings a lesson about what it means to be human? And I think it is the very definition of what great science fiction does and the questions that it poses. Now, there have been many different versions of this movie. Most of them have been put out on, on home video in various, in, in various formats. But to me, I can never get away from the first time I saw this movie, which was, of course, the theatrical version that came out in, in June of 1982. And it, 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 it's a noir 40s detective film with a voiceover and a trench coated cop trying to solve a mystery trying to hunt down killers and and yet at the same time it gets into these very existential questions of of human existence itself and it is so dazzling to look at i don't think there's ever been a movie in hollywood history made that has been more emulated or ripped off or paid homage to than this film I mean, almost 40 years later, we still look at movies that has the aesthetic of Blade Runner, yet none of them look as good as Blade Runner did. And it it set the tone in so many ways. But I don't think it's a particularly great film. I think it's it's almost to me, I think of it as a tone poem. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's a great bit of cinema, but maybe not a great movie. Yeah, but it's definitely one of the most profound science fiction films I think ever made because it doesn't leave you when it's over. You know, you think about it. I mean, I'm, it's, it's, it's next year will be its 40th anniversary. And I'm still, I'm well, still thinking year. about it right now. Because when this airs, it's 2022, Rob. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, yes. <laughs> We're right on the cusp of 2022. And yes, that's right. I didn't re- wow. I didn't realize this is going into next year, but yes. And it, it is, it is really a profound experience. And 
And I don't think anybody that watches this movie, especially if you see it in a theater, and unfortunately, so many people have not. Uh, I almost wish that, you know, they would just give this movie a re-release and just not say anything. Don't say it's 40, 40 years old. Just re-release it in a theater. And I think seeing this in a, in, a, in a theater is a really definitely profound experience that will leave you shook. And uh, it's certainly, I went back and I think I saw it five times in the summer of 82 because it was an amazing experience, but just because I couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, these last couple of films have had so many different iterations and that'll continue to be, uh, uh, I think, across our list. But Aliens, you know, there, there are two significant versions of that. Uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, there are three significant cuts, the original theatrical, the ABC cut and the director's edition and now the, the new director's edition. And then Blade Runner, of course, famously has its original Both. cut, the work print version, the director's cut and the final cut. Um, and uh it's so interesting to hear you talk about it because like you, Rob, I kind of prefer the original version mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. I think the greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince people that this movie was not great until Ridley's final version. And uh, yes, you know, some of the dialogue is ham fisted, but ultimately it is a forties noir sci-fi movie. And the narration fits that to a T. Yeah. And I, you know, kind of like the ending with the shining footage at the end and uh, and having more closure and, you know, Deckard not being a replicant. Well, I have to say that I am I'm I am team Deckard is a human being because if Deckard is ultimately a replicant, I think the movie doesn't mean much. Yeah, it isn't about you, anything. You know, you, I mean, you, you need to have uh, you need to have a man recognize that these characters, the replicants themselves have a soul. Yes. And yeah. you're not, it, it can't just be that we, the viewer, well, if, if Deckard's actually a replicant and falls in love with a woman, it, it doesn't yeah. mean the same thing. Deckard doesn't mean anything us. at all. It yeah, it's a, that's an intellectual exercise. That's not like that is that's not a, a, a vicarious, visceral experience that we're having in the cinema. And like you, Mark, I maintain that we wouldn't even be talking about Ridley Scott's final cut if there wasn't a version with that narration. Because I agree that like I, as much as I love this movie, there's not a lot of narrative coherence. Like if you take away that narration and like yeah. once you've seen it with the narration you cannot unsee it ever because now like you're walking in with like this basic understanding of the film right so now you can watch it without the narration and you can get it but i think you know that the uh, that the narration actually helped it it was necessary i actually like you mark i agree that it kind of added something to the tone of it and i also like the ending much better yeah sue yeah. us people no, it's so interesting uh, to hear all of us uh, uh, have that. Uh, that I, I love what Rob said about it's a work of great. It's a work of great cinema. It's less great movie as a movie. Yeah, right. And I remember, you know, certainly when it first came out on, VC, on VC, VHS and HBO, I would always watch it up until when Joanna Cassidy gets killed, because that's when it's like um, like a detective film. And then it gets all metaphysical and, and, you know, the whole, and of course now I appreciate the ending a lot more the third act, but you know, the whole idea of tears in the rain, you know, be gone like tears in the rain, but you know, it becomes a very different movie. Um, right. And uh, it's a wonderful movie. And uh, you know, the Ridley Scott's vision for it is spectacular and it defined the future for the next 40 years of genre pictures um and it changed the way people looked at the future 
Um, and it's a remarkable, remarkable film. Um, but yeah, it's a great movie. <laughs> also, I mean, its resonance is going to continue because it's now influenced a whole generation of video games. Yep. You know, Cyberpunk 2077 and, and the, the look of the future. I mean, whether it's altered carbon, you know, or what pick, take your pick. I mean, the, the, the Blade Runner future, even though we're now beyond the year it takes place, took place in 2019, we're beyond that year. And I think we're still waiting, you know, maybe in another 50 or 100 years because of global warming, we'll live with perpetual rain and coastal cities flooded and we'll all be eating grubs for food. I mean, who knows? But okay Rob's. well last night the sun came out and it sang to darren number six <laughs> el sol salió anoche y me canto that's all no uh look 1977 was an amazing year um we uh we got uh, star wars in may and a mere six months later the spy who loved me That was a only a few months six later. Six months later. Oh, okay. Thanks. There was another um, gut punch in the science fiction fan uh, oeuvre. And it was the arrival of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Have you recently had a close encounter? A close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you people? Steven Spielberg's uh, uh, arguably best film. Now, I know I'm going to get, uh, you know, a lot of flack for saying that, but in terms of something that he was, um, the, the purity of it and the purity of his talent at the time. He's um, credited as the single screenwriter. He's credited. He wasn't, I know. but I know. he was credited as it. Um, but his talents and the subject matter completely were intermingled with each other. And this is a perfect example of his style of storytelling and wonder. Uh, and it's, it's my favorite Spielberg movie. Um, the story of it is amazing. It is ostensibly about the, uh, you know, the first contact between aliens and human beings. Um, and 
the special people who are called to witness it. I wrote a, a, a little essay a few years ago that says basically that that's not what this movie is about. This is not about aliens. This is not about science fiction. This is about the pursuing of a creative life. All the people that were called to witness this, uh, this uh, gathering were creative in some way, painters, musicians, sculptors. Um, and they went through a lot of trouble to get there. They faced uh, threats to their lives, to their well-being, to their sanity. And they overcame all these obstacles to be there. And, and they tried to, and most of them failed, except for two people, um, Richard Dreyfus as Roy Neary and Melinda Dillon as, uh, as uh, Geiler, Jillian Geiler. Um, and they were the only ones to succeed and to pass all these obstacles to join this great um, accumulation of knowledge and wonder and beauty. And it's an amazing story. Uh, not, not to be confused with the TV series that came a few years later. Um, it's, it's wonderful. The music by John Williams is perhaps a very, it's a very uh, strange mixture of uh, atonal and uh, melodic uh, music that completely sets the, uh, the scene for the whole film. And it's uplifting and it's mysterious and it's joyous uh, all in the space of two hours. Um, the, again, this is the third movie we're talking about, the uh, brilliance of uh, Douglas Trumbull the visual effects supervisor who brought these amazing visions to the screen. And it's such a, it's such an unexpected experience when you watch this. I'm a fan of the original theatrical version that uh, gives a little more backstory to Roy Neary and his life. And uh, Spielberg was uh, quoted years later as saying he would not be able to make this movie today because uh, Neri leaves his uh, wife and children. And I seriously have problems with that, with that thought, because he doesn't. They leave him because they have no trust in him and they have no faith that he is sane. They don't support him. And so naturally, what is his choice? He has no choice. So I, he doesn't leave them. That's the first thing. And I think that it's such a it's such a wonderful experience of dealing with these unknowns and self doubt and and uh, and frightening situations and pushing through them and uh, cutting through the lies the lies about the uh, the bad air and uh, the uh, threats from the government and all of that to find uh, truth and enlightenment. And that's what the movie is about. And I love it and uh, see it again and again and again. Yeah, every couple of years I revisit this movie. I forget how good it is. I forget, you know, it's like because yes. it's completely in the public mind now. The zeitgeist has been overshadowed by Star Wars because mm -hmm. this is the quiet movie. Right. And um, it is such virtuoso filmmaking from uh, Steven Spielberg. Um, it's so personal to him. But just the way he moves the camera, the way that it's shot. I mean, that opening teaser 
um, oh. where Bob Balaban and, and Francois Truffaut show up uh, at the site and find the the planes. It, it's 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 remarkable. And I remember how I discovered this kind of way you would discover movies back then. I was at a Barnes and Noble in Manhattan looking around and I saw the novelization and on the novelization, it said, you know, for close encounters of first kind, close encounters of second kind, close encounters of third kind. And it was, you know, just printed over this lonely road, yeah. you know, at night. And I'm just like, I don't know what this is. What's this? Yeah. But it looks so cool. And, you know, I and went how do I read the first two books? Opening right. day, right. <laughs> when opening day and, and ended up in the front row, barely got in and, you know, looked up the whole time. Yeah. And it didn't matter because it is such a spectacular tour de force by a master filmmaker at the top of his game. Yep. I have to say too, that at the time that this opened, I was really into, I, I had checked out every book on strange phenomena at my local public library. Mm -hmm. And I had bought, there was a book by Charles Burlitz called the Bermuda triangle. And it had a die cut cover of a boat on the cover. And when you opened it up, it had the ocean and then the boat would, like disappear as you open up the cover. <laughs> and I had read that. So when the movie, and when I saw the film downtown, it was playing in 70 millimeter at the King Cinema and across the street was the UA 150 where Star Wars played. And even though this came out the holidays and Star Wars had been playing since May, there were still lines. Yeah. So when you'd go see Close Encounters, the lines were stretching down the street, almost like they were competing lines. And, and it really cemented into my mind that these two movies, Star Wars and Close Encounters were really the things that cemented in my 10-year-old brain that I, this is what I want to do. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to make films, but Close Encounters to me was much more, like, while Star Wars took place in space, I never thought of it as, like, pure science fiction. Yeah. Whereas to me, Close Encounters was, like Logan's Run, you know, the year before, was this epic science fiction story and I love the idea, and I maybe forever I will always have an optimistic view of the idea of meeting extraterrestrial life. But the aliens are so nice. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, they had they they took our crews, but they put our planes down softly so they still worked, you know. And and when they were coming back because of time dilation and space and traveling at the speed of light or whatever, it, it, the only thing that I'd never liked about close encounters is that when the when all the humans are returned on the dark side of the moon before the aliens actually make their appearance. It's like, they don't know what happened to them. Like they were right. taken out of there. And I, I wanted them to be like, where do you guys go up there? It's yeah. going to be amazing. And that's a Starbucks. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love this movie so much because like Star Trek, the motion picture and like, like even it, it ET that he recreated, there is a sense of wonder at the end of this movie that is not like the sense of wonder at 2000 at the end of 2001 which has one no. but 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 the the sense of wonder in this in this movie is so joyous and i forever it's, it, it's been forever ingrained in me that if we ever meet a more advanced civilization i'd like to believe that that's the way it would happen it's uh, a childlike wonder it is a childlike wonder but but you see these the scientists you know there's these yeah. guys are like and I'll never forget the guy running into the 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 outhouse to pee, yeah. and he's running so fast because he doesn't want to miss anything. You know, there's so many touches in this movie. This movie is so beautifully made, but at the end of the day, it is such a joyous experience to watch. And even even though Roy Neary leaves at the end, and I agree with you, Darren, his family left him, but 
even in in William's score when he 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 um, touches on when you wish upon a star, yeah, as the mothership is flying away, and all of that, it's it's it, it's just amazing. And to this day, I'm still wondering what the shape of a square is. You know what? It so subverts your expectations as a viewer because for no matter how many years you've been going to movies, you know aliens are bad guys. How many movies on those lists are the aliens, the bad guys? I mean, other than Day the Earth Stood Still, the aliens are usually the you know are here to invade. They're here to do terrible things, you know. And and so even in Close Encounters, for most of the running time, you think these are not good people. When Melinda Dillon, they take Melinda Dillon's it's Terry terrifying. Guffey, That's it's terrifying. Terrifying. And and you think, oh my God, you know these are these are bad. Well, it's terrifying bad to aliens. her. Yes, right. Not to, the not to him. Yeah, right. right. In retrospect, you realize that, yes. right? Totally. But, but, uh, but so it's so remarkable that ending, and yeah. and I think it taps into something, you know, certainly for us, because we're all you know optimists, and we grew up on movies, and you know we want to believe the best of things. Um, so it, it, you know, Close Encounters is just a fundamental, you know, it's philosophically aligned with I think our our beliefs you know and it's just just a it's just a great movie and again it's like i keep having to remind myself how good it is and just sitting here and listening to you guys talk about it, i'm like wow yeah that movie's really good. i gotta watch that again <laughs> oh and, and the thing also it also inspired i mean i don't think between the parallax view and close encounters if those two movies hadn't come out in the 70s chris carter never would have made the x-files <laughs> yeah, right yeah yeah that's right. Okay, well, it's time to talk about the bonus situation, Ashley. Number five. <laughs> Number five is still alive. That's right. It's short circuit. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Um, Number five is the movie where we learned a little something about sound in space. <laughs> because in space, no one can hear you scream. Number five is uh, Ridley Scott's abso-effing-lutely terrifying original alien. Still with us, Brett? Clay. Yeah. He's dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? (laughs) Intercepted transmission of unknown origin. What kind of a transmission? SOS. Human. Ash, can you see this? I've never seen anything like it. Holding on a second position. We've got this far, we must go on. We have to go on. It doesn't look like an SOS. It looks like a warning. Wait a minute, there's movement. What the hell is that? You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. The emergency destruct system is now active. The ship will detonate. Oh, God, it's 
no no cube sign, no resurrection, no VP, no Prometheus, none of that. Old school, haunted house, monster on the loose, worst dinner conversation in the history of film, Alien. Let me tell you about my first experience with this movie. I was but a lad of um, five years old and I did not go see that. Let me just tell you, my parents weren't, you know, they weren't that terrible. I mean, uh, however, comma, this was a, this was a time in the world when trailers would play. And I guess they still do, but you know, kids, we had these things called commercial breaks in our television shows and we did not binge and they just kind of happened. And like during the commercials, sometimes there would be trailers for movies, movie commercials, 30 seconds long. And the two um, that, uh, that, uh, that messed me up, the two that messed me up the most, the one that most messed me up was Alien because it was just, it was very simple. It was just, I remember that damned egg and not wanting to know what was inside, not wanting to know what was going to come out uh, the very definition of, you know, visual tension. It's um, the whole movie is like that. You know, it's uh, it's it is not what you would call a, a visual effects extravaganza. Uh, it is just incredibly well realized visually. It is just a bunch of blue collar guys and, you know, Ellen Ripley on, you know, a dirty freaking, you know, uh, trash heap. Of a, uh, of, a, of a spaceship where they have under orders, but not knowing why, uh, gone to a planet where some weird crap has happened. There's like all kinds of insane things that can't be explained, that never are explained. And frankly, when the movies get around to trying to explain them, they're not very entertaining um, uh, on this planet. And uh, they bring something back with them, uh, something horrible. Uh, something um, that just it, it, that changes cinema forever. One of the great creature designs of all time, H.R. Giger's um, alien design, um, this kind of biomechanical aesthetic uh, that was obviously like almost overtly sexual. Um, it was bloody. It was awful. It was it was unexpected. Um, and it was just masterful filmmaking um and the it's just it's impossible like to to describe like what it is like to see that film for the first time i got to take you know my my wife to see it for the first time like when she was an adult and it like even after all the movies that it influenced alien scared the crap out of her because it is a legit scary movie that holds up to this day the world building in it is great why because it's contained because the world feels lived in because you have this amazing scene like where all the uh, all the crew of the nostromo the very beginning of the movie they wake up from cryo sleep and the first thing they start bitching about is their paycheck yep. is their money right it's like what happens like the bonus situation right they have arguments about it ellen ripley goes down in the bowels of the ship there's yafficado like talking to what's his name and they're like they're giving her a hard time because she's one of the officers on the ship, right? She's the enemy. She's in dangerous territory with these guys, right? She's the man. Kind of, yeah, that's right. You know, it's like they're, she's, they're kind of screwing with her a little bit, but you feel the tension in it. But you also see her toughness. It's just 
there's it just it it sketches out like the rules of this world and who lives in it and why they live there very quickly, very effectively. And then it takes this amazing left turn where they bring the alien aboard. Um, and again, it's like, I, I mean, what else? And then it takes another stuff? amazing left turn after that. That's true. Which is uh, amazing. It, it's, it's really kind of one left turn after another. And by the yeah. way, it also teaches us like, just, you know what, when the cat goes missing, let it, it. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> well, Jones survived. Cool, man. He does, or he does survive. Until Alien Three. So, where was the Jones sequel? By the way, you know what? If Alex Kurtzman was, was was making the Aliens franchise, there would absolutely be an animated show about Jones fighting aliens. I, I got to tell you, right Jones now, it would be on Captain Marvel. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. You know what? Probably so. And being the one entertaining thing in that film. This may be the most ripped off movie in cinematic history. Yep. Mm-hmm. Alien. It's amazing how many. And the most ripped off badly. Yeah. Yes. They, they rip off the wrong things. And there's a great parody of the dinner scene in Spaceballs. Yes. Yeah. Hello, just, my baby. There is Hello, a parody. Hello, my right parody. Not a great parody, but it's a, it's a parody. It's very effective. You know what I also love, though, about this film, and you touched on it, Ashley, the idea that space travel is mundane. Yeah. You know, and and, and the idea that, that, like you had said, these are just like blue-collar oil rig workers just, just doing their job. They think they're in a space trucker movie. You know, that's that's exactly, and, and I have to tell you, here's one of the, the greatest, uh, in terms of well-cast movies, in terms of faces and putting together actors, uh, you know, I can't even imagine when <laughs> I would love to know what the, the 20th Century Fox brass thought when they decided who was going to star in this movie. I would love to see the two executives going, wait, who's in this movie? Well, remember, it's Alan Ladd. It's Alan Ladd. <laughs> yeah, he, Alan Ladd was, was a man. And, and Tom Skerritt's going to lead this thing. But I, I don't think there's ever been, in terms of science fiction films, a, a more perfectly cast film just in terms of of the faces the looks the attitudes um and absolutely and, and that's it, ian holm and harry Dean stanton and yafet Koda, veronica Cartwright. all everyone amazing. is individual and completely distinct it's so mm-hmm. distinct and and i have to say that this film if it didn't have well computers that look dated decades it this movie could have been shot yesterday yeah the, the, this film is truly timeless and it is it is so sim- simple but so elegant in its execution and again i feel that this was a time when all the craftspeople that worked on films really knew their jobs and and it is it is a marvel i mean nowadays when everything is previsd and 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 the director is is just one of many i mean this is a film where the the truly the department heads were visionaries whether it was the production designer whether it was Giger himself whether it's Brian Johnson and the effects team I mean these were the, these were the days and Dan O'Badden and, Dan and David Geiler and Walter oh. Hill I mean my god does this represent and it wasn't expensive relatively speaking that's was, why there was a sequel because it wasn't mm-hmm. like it was such a huge hit I mean it was not cheap but it, it is, and it's a marvel of physical effects work. And, and again, you know, when you have people that really know what they're doing, it was really Scott's second feature film. 
And um, what an achievement this film yeah. is. It really is. And it's amazing when you think about it, that of all the huge franchises in science fiction, the one, the only one that has three films. No, no, Star Trek does. Alien. Uh, Alien has we have Alien on our list. We had Aliens and we had Alien 3 on our list. So that's three. The only other franchise that has represented as much as uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, Star Trek, the Wrath of Khan and, and Star Trek uh, four, uh, uh, the uh, no, Star Trek first contact. And Star um, Trek six. And oh, yeah. So, OK, so Star Trek beat Alien. Star Trek. But okay. well, you can't count Star Trek because we're biased. Yeah. OK. So that's anyway, true. however, yeah. Alien is, you know, to have three films in this is pretty impressive. And we haven't finished. So you don't know Prometheus could be on the list. By the way, three films for three entirely different reasons. Three very different yeah. films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Phenomenal film that will continue to reverberate even now, uh, all these years later. And speaking of films that reverberate all these years later, it's my second favorite movie of 1977. But for the greatest sci-fi movies of all time, Annie Hall is not eligible. So um, it's Star Wars. Luke Skywalker was just a farm boy until he received a mysterious message from a princess. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. She's beautiful. Star Wars, starring Mark Hamill. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. Aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? Harrison Ford. Boring conversation anyway. Luke, we're going to have to I think we took a wrong turn. Carrie Fisher. Good luck. Alec Guinness. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. 20th Century Fox presents the most extraordinary motion picture of all time, Star Wars. Here's where the fun begins. No legendary adventure of the past could be as exciting as this romance of the future. Here they come. May the Force be with you in Star Wars. The great sci-fi classic film uh, that changed science fiction and space opera forever. Uh, uh, George Lucas' singular vision, which created an empire, no pun intended, and uh, created a generation of fans uh, the world over and continues again to another franchise that resonates now, perhaps more than ever, thanks to its uh, brand extension on television with the book of Boba Fett and the Mandalorian. Um, so Star Wars, which was represented with Star Wars Rogue One earlier on our list, returns to the countdown with Star Wars number four. And for those of you who refer to it as a new hope, this is Get the out. 1977 film Star Wars. No episode four. No bloody no four, five or six. 1977 Star Wars. That's what it was called. That's what it will always be. No called. bloody ABC. No Indiana theory. Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. None of that nonsense that 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 reconstituted garbage. It's Star Wars. <laughs> Did I mention it's called Star Wars? Now there is there is some opinion that this should not be in a list of science fiction movies because it is entirely a a, a fantasy movie. It's in a space, space fantasy movie in space. Yeah, with aliens. And I'm, I'm, just, light I'm, travel. Just, I'm just raising that subject. I know, I know it's wrong thinking, but just wrong so thinking the, is punishable. Correct. Just so that you know, everyone who's going to complain about it 
in uh, in messages to us know that we know that that's a question and we we choose to not think that way it's in space yeah. we just it, don't care you know what the title is <laughs> star wars <laughs> hence it's in space in amongst it's the right stars there. in a galaxy far far away okay not everything needs to be robert heinlein and ray bradbury it can be pulp sci-fi too and that's what star wars is and it's all the better for it agreed in space and you know the here's look obvious uh, like there's anything new we can say about like what makes star wars great nothing there's just nothing. isn't other than except other than this no this is actually book. is not new at all but to me <laughs> i just sort of as we've been having this conversation about the top 10 and what makes them the top 10 i mean the 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 surface evaluation of star wars is well of course it's just freaking star wars man mm -hmm. and like it, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation at all with, in the absence of Star Wars. But I'll tell you what makes Star Wars great science fiction for me is that the world building, even in just the tiniest moves, the world building in this film is excellent. It is Tolkien-esque. And Tolkien like worked on The Lord of the Rings for decades, man, putting all of that together. And what is accomplished in this movie and it's relatively sparse running time is nothing short of astonishing. You fully believe the world that this movie occupies, mm -hmm. right? We know what motivates everyone. We have suggestions of how the world is organized, right? There are, in Tolkien terms, there are distant mountains, right? We have references to the Clone Wars. What's that? I don't know, you know? A great animated uh, series. Good. It's a great animated series. But at the time, we didn't have to know. We didn't have to see it then. We just had to know. It was interesting, right? It was all those little things that suggested a world out of frame. And that's the real genius of, of Star Wars in terms of the storytelling. There's so many things that like we could talk about, like on production levels and all that other shit, but like, but just the way that it sketched out a world out of frame is almost peerless and almost by itself earns its place on this list for me well and you also think about the building blocks of star trek which a lot of people don't associate with star wars but no ship that small has a cloaking device i mean it's it's lucas was a huge star trek fan i mean i remember when lucas, star wars but okay it's an empire i know i understand that but what i'm saying is <laughs> the dna that star trek was an influence on star wars absolutely and if you've seen george uh, and as you'd have with gene at the uh 10th anniversary of star wars convention you know what a big fan he was of star trek yep. and that you know star trek you know look it, 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 the origins of star wars started with george lucas wanting to make flash gordon right the same way that raiders started with him wanting to do a james bond movie yep. or spielberg wanted to do a james right. bond movie so you know, in it, Star Wars has sci-fi pulp in its DNA and and space. And I want to point out that if you've not had a chance to cash <laughs> in your gift card for the holidays and are disappointed with the socks you got, it's not too late to get Secrets of the Force, the best-selling book from Ed Gross and myself from St. Martin's Press, available on audio, hardcover, and digital today. So it's not that behind the scenes of the police uh, organization. <laughs> Use those gift cards today to purchase this great oral history of Star Wars, not A New Hope, Star Wars, and the entire entire franchise. It's all represented in that one book, that one little book. It's all in there, uh, all of it. <laughs> Rob, what about Star Wars? 
about it? Look, I think Star Wars changed my life, certainly. Um, It it, it took, if nothing else, um, one of the things that I think that's important to realize that people forget is there was nothing in the history of humanity that was anything like Star Wars before before Star Wars existed. And I'll never forget uh, opening weekend, I think my dad took me and my friend Gardner Morelli it, it, on That's Friday. That's a great name. You should it use that in a script. Gardner Morelli. He took us. He took he us. Killed to see Star Gardner Wars. Morelli. And I figured when I saw the the trailers for Star Wars, I figured someone made a movie just for me. I uh, because I was a Star Trek fanatic and a Twilight Zone fanatic, and I love my sci-fi theater on Sunday afternoons. I figured nobody would care about this movie. My dad took me to the theater to the UA one fifty where Empire Strikes Back played longer first run there than anywhere else in the world. And um, I saw lying around the block. I'd never seen this in my life. And I, I felt like, who are these people? Who are, who are these people? No, that was yeah. number uh, number six. Yeah, I know. And, and I, I was almost going to cry. And I'm like, I, I want to see it so bad. My dad took me and Gardner to see a double bill of the car and race with the devil at the Coliseum <laughs> Theater instead. And so and so I, I, and I thought I came out on the on the, the better end of the stick on that one. because he, he just dropped us off and went to his office and came back when it was done. I'm like, Dad, you're not going to believe this. A satanic cult burned up this Winnebago with this this these couples. It was amazing. And uh, it, and there was a, a car possessed by the devil. Like, I loved it. It was the greatest thing I ever saw. But then I had to see Star Wars. So our next door neighbors, they, they actually lived across the street, the Chambers said you know bob we'll, we'll take you we're gonna go on sunday and i'm like listen man if we go i'm like 10 if we're, we gotta go like four hours early and no one had ever gone to a movie four hours early I'm like you don't understand you know we have to go early and we went like three hours early and still we were halfway down <laughs> in the line and so this is the sunday the weekend the movie opened yeah i'm i'm sitting i'm in the ua 150 beautiful domed theater it was huge screen i had never heard people whisper in a movie theater everyone was reading the opening titles you know it's a period of civil war rebel spaceships striking striking from base you know all that <laughs> and i'm like the whole theater holds that like i'm like what you can't read in your head but the entire theater was like whispering and it was so crazy and then i i, I again i'd never seen this before ever in a movie the camera pans down you see two planets or moons or the moons uh, it pans down and then you see the horizon of Tatooine fill the whole screen. I'd never seen a planet represented that way in a movie. It was always like a, a full sphere or yeah. Kubrick's film in 2001 you saw, but it was still like, you didn't see like the whole. And then of course the rebel blockade runner and the star destroyer. And I, I remember like literally sitting back in my seat going, Whoa. And the whole theater did the same thing. The whole theater, like lean back in the seats and it was, it was an experience you had never seen anything. Now everyone knows. I mean, everyone knows R two D two and C three PO. No one had ever seen this kind of imagination splashed upon a movie screen. Every frame from the production design to the world building to the music to the characters, it was it was watching a, a perfect example of of fantasy imagination. Everything that was in your childhood memory that you didn't even know was there was splashed up on the screen and i it, to this day to this day 
nothing comes close. Yeah. Nothing comes close to seeing Star Wars yeah. the first time. And and it was it was somebody who I was already predisposed to liking all this. And the fact that it was all dude, it's real. Like it's- Star Wars was real. When I was 10 years old, I'm like, this is not like I, I it used to bother me when I would see flames come out of a spaceship because you knew it was like a Ohio blue tip match that they lit on fire and the, the flame would always burn up from behind the spaceship. It was not like this. Everything was completely real. The engines of the Star Destroyers, that was some real plasma. I don't know what would, it was real. Yeah. And everything was real. And I had never seen a movie where I'm like, this is all completely. It's like watching a documentary. This all really happened. And One even of the, the trailers things- right now, this is happening somewhere, you know, and they were right. And there was nothing like that in my young life. I'd never seen anything remotely similar and no one else had either. People don't understand. Star Wars wasn't just a movie. I mean, every editorial page of every newspaper was full of Star Wars editorial uh, cartoons. It was everywhere. It was a cultural phenomenon like no other cultural phenomenon that I've ever seen in my life to this day. What's been what's been gone over throughout the years is that it turns out that Star Wars is a seamless uh, synthesis of all these disparate ideas from storytelling throughout the ages, all these sort of um, iconic uh, symbolism and uh, uh, character types and mythology sort of um, squashed into this one strange, modern, old-fashioned package. And it's really an amazing feat because, as you said, nothing had been seen like this before. But this, all this stuff shouldn't go together as well as it does. But it does. It works completely, completely seamlessly. And it's amazing. Well, I want to point out, this is, in case you didn't know, a Star Trek podcast. And I have to say, the few times we've delved into Star Wars have been, while I consider them some of our best episodes, have been some of our lower, lower on the lower rated side of our episodes. Apparently, Star Trek and, and Star Wars don't mix, that you diehard Star Trek fans aren't interested in hearing about Star Wars. So we're going to move on to number three and Darren's <laughs> Ogden. And because we don't want to talk any more about Star Wars, number three is The Empire Strikes Back. On February 21st, 20th Century Fox and George Lucas present the next chapter in the Star Wars Trilogy Special Edition. The Empire Strikes Back. Skywalker will join us or die. I'm not afraid. You will be. An epic adventure with a force all its own. You're not actually going into an asteroid field. It'd be crazy to follow us, wouldn't they? Where destinies are foretold. You will be tempted by the dark side. Fears are awakened. And secrets are at long last revealed. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. Then, on March 7th, don't miss the final chapter of the Star Wars trilogy. Return of the Jedi. Let's go. A time to take cover. For the final battle is about to begin. The 
Empire Strikes Back. And Return of the Jedi. Both with newly enhanced visual effects. THX and digital sound. And a few new surprises. Join me. It is your destiny. The Star Wars Trilogy Special Edition. You haven't seen anything till you've seen everything. From 1980, from May of 1980, the sequel to Star Wars, the, 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 uh, it's a very strange sequel. It's a complete um, spinning of your expectations. Uh, we are still with our, uh, with our familiar characters, but they are in completely different situations than we've seen them in before. And new. much more dire situations. And they're split up during the film so that they, uh, they have to deal with things on their own. And look, Irvin Kirshner, when he was first asked by George Lucas to uh, direct this film, he said, uh, look, I, I think that directing this uh, uh, sequel to Star Wars is a, a really bad idea. You, you can't win. It's, it's a bad thing to do. You can't win. If you do a good job, you're blamed for making the old one worse. And if you do a bad job, you're said, oh, you can't do as well as the original. This is what he said. And it's, um, I rarely get to do my Irvin Kirshner. Uh, wait yeah, till Robocop talk, 2 was wait till we talk about Robocop. <laughs> um, but he did such an amazing job of an outsider coming into this world and um, stirring it up a bit. Uh, granted, the, the story was Lucas's along with Lee Brackett and, uh, and Lawrence Kasdan, who came in uh, to uh, uh, finish up the work after Lee Brackett died. Um, and it's it's really, it's really a true sequel because it takes things off in a completely different direction than uh, you expect. You know, after the first one, everyone's happy, everyone's a winner, but no, no, the Empire is still there and now they're mad. So uh, this is what happens. And they are constantly running away from the, the enormous power of the, enter of the Enterprise. The Enterprise. <laughs> that I'd like to see. Of the Empire. <laughs> And here's a spoiler. They lose. They lose at the end of this movie. And it's, it's amazing. And when I first saw it, I was really mad at the end of this movie uh, because it's not satisfying. You want, you want more to happen, but it doesn't. And that's what's so brilliant about it. It's because it makes you wait another three years. I, I feel bad for all these kids. Their parents don't know better. I know people like this where they... They show them Star Wars from episode one from Phantom Menace oh, on. Oh, and it's oh. like, I just can't imagine ruining it for them. And yeah, I'm not even horrible. casting aspersions on Phantom Menace. The whole idea that, you know, this huge line in, in cinematic history, I am your father, of uh, being ruined because, you know, anyone who watched it from episode one is like, yeah, no, duh. <laughs> right. you know, of course, <laughs> why is that a surprise? <laughs> oh, it's dude. Uh, yeah. But you know what was interesting about this is it comes from Everything. an era where sequels were not ever considered that. There was one. It was Godfather 2. And we lived in this weird era where there was a sequel to Rocky. There was a sequel to Jaws. 
but they were not something that was considered to be anything more of the same. Yeah, they were kind of money grubbing efforts. From the very beginning of this movie, everything about it was it plussed Star Wars. Mm -hmm. The imagination on display, the worlds on display, the technology on display, the imagination on display. I saw this movie 26 times in the theater. I saw it, I saw it 26 times at the UA 150 where it actually played it played for 66 weeks straight first run and uh, Lucasfilm gave the city of Seattle or the this an award for there was a they it was they took out ads in the paper and everything but uh, this movie is such a triumph of the imagination and it, it's funny because it's hard to explain to people now what it was like because I remember thinking, as a kid, there's no way that they could make a movie as good as Star Wars. There's just no way. It couldn't happen. And and sitting there watching this, John Williams' score, I mean, the Star Wars score is great. Mm -hmm. But man, this score has some amazing pieces of music. Uh, even even when the the point of view shot from the front of the snowspeeder, when, when Rogue One or, or whatever goes out, not Rogue One, Rogue, Rogue Two? What Rogue is it? Two. Rogue Two, looking for... That was a sequel to Rogue One. Yeah, L Rogue Two is looking for uh, Han and, and Luke, you know, and I, I mean, that that point of view shot in the theater where you're like, whoa, yeah. you know, you really felt like you were flying into snowspeeder. And just the fact that there were snowspeeders and and, and uh, the the executor and... and uh, Executor. It's a superstar. It was in charge of the Empire's estate. Is it you the know, executor? Come on. And, and, and the audacity of having... Oh the biggest action scene in the movie 20 minutes in. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, but it's, I mean, Bezpin and the twin pod cloud cars and Yoda twin pod cloud and the cars, my that, sister. And the, the, the <laughs> twin, twin pod clown cars. Yes. What? It's like all like the clone troopers just keep getting out. Just more uh -huh. of them cycling out of the oh, and that lightsaber fight. And, and, yeah. oh, dude. and I mean, you know, the other thing about this was an era when, you know, that great introduction of Yoda, where he's just this little gnome who's causing all kinds of crap for Luke and he wants his food. And he goes, mine, mine, mine. And you're thinking, this guy's really annoying. Let, let's go find the Jedi Master, you know. And, and, and it's so funny, but you forget, like, the first time you saw it, you didn't realize this guy was the Jedi Master. And then yeah, there's another thing great... episode one screws up for you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, his voice changes. I cannot teach him. And, and you're like, like wait, what? Yeah. yeah. And you'll notice he doesn't speak backwards. He only speaks backwards when he's playing the little gnome. Yeah, that's right. That's very right. Which is, I mean, you can have that conversation about Clone Wars. But, um, <laughs> to, to me, like, not only does this movie earn its spot on our list of the 101, like, greatest science fiction movies ever made. For me, it would, it would, it would probably earn something close to this spot, um, or at least in this zip code. Uh, the greatest films ever made. It is one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and and, and just to... on like on any level. And I think, and and this is all I, I have to contribute to this conversation beyond this, other than weirdly, I think I saw this movie with Steve Melcher, Um, without even realizing it. Uh, that it's funny. I, I took a, a heap of crap on the 430 movie for uh, for submitting this like valentine's day week. yeah but i will say that the love story in this movie is great and it actually it had great. an enormous impact on me because that love story is a, is a story between <laughs> adults right yeah. who like who sort of it, well it's it is 
It is. It's. It's a truly. It, it's not about teenagers who are sort of mooning too. over each other, right? It's like, like it's. It is actually people who care about each other and understand each other, and it's yeah. just. It's. It's just. It's just a great story on every level, on a character level, like everything. So. I would have to say that as much as I love Empire Strikes Back, I I don't agree with the order that it appears in our list. I think Star Wars should be first, uh, at number three, but. I understand the the desire to put it uh, where it is now, but uh, I would put Star Wars first just because Star Wars is the foundation that all of this is built on. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting that you would say that because, of course, for number one and two, we had our only tie, and uh, we're gonna and I think uh, we'll, we'll explain why that is, and reveal our number one and two films. But before we do that. We have a few honorary mentions, films that just missed being on this list or, or didn't have the consensus to make the top 100, but uh, we feel are worthy of, of mention now. So uh, to present our honorary mentions, let's start with Darren. Well, my honorary mention uh, came at a time when I most needed it. Uh, uh, I actually didn't see it when it first came out. I saw it in 2014. Uh, but it came out in 2013, and it mm. is Spike Jones's written and directed uh, Her. Good morning, Theodore. Good morning. You have a meeting in five minutes. You want to try getting out of bed? <laughs> Get up! You're too funny. Theodore, I saw in your emails that you'd gone through a breakup recently. You're kind of nosy. Am I? You'll get used to it. So what was it like being married? There's something that feels so good about sharing your life with somebody. How do you share your life with somebody? The woman that I've been seeing, Samantha, she's an operating system. You're dating in a West? What is that like? <laughs> I feel really close to her. Like when I talk to her, I feel like she's with me. I want to learn everything about everything. I want to discover myself. I want that for you too. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Falling in love is kind of like a form of socially acceptable insanity. You're dating your computer? She's not just a computer. You always wanted to have a wife without the challenges of actually dealing with anything real. I'm glad that you found someone. I don't know what I want, ever. Am I in this because I'm strong enough for a real relationship? Is it not a real relationship? because I don't think you'd feel so alone anymore. You're beautiful. We're only here briefly. And while I'm here, I, I want to allow myself joy. I've never loved anyone the way I love you. Me too. Now I know how. which is uh, the story of uh, how Joaquin Phoenix deals with his breakup by dating his computer. Um, <laughs> and it sounds like a, a silly premise, 
but it is so well done and it is so it feels so real and so prescient uh, of the situation that we are uh, slowly entering in in our relationship with our machines and um, I think that the uh, the only question is when will the technology reach this situation uh, so that this will happen and it will um, what happens is uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix has uh, just split up with his wife of many years and uh, he is alone lonely miserable and uh, virtually suicidal and uh, he hears that there is a new uh, what they call an OS operating system that is available for his uh, now it's not just his computer it, his computer is linked to all his other personal devices he has like a phone system and everything and so he gets this OS and the OS is named Samantha and it uh, is a uh, basically a lovely woman that he can converse with and she feels absolutely real uh, she lives in his uh, earpiece, and uh, it's a an extremely realistic progression of falling in love. And it's amazing how deftly this is handled, and how odd that you know some people consider in the film that this is a, a normal thing because apparently it goes on a lot in this world. Uh, that people uh, fall for their OS uh, uh, setups. And it's really fascinating about the question of uh, what is consciousness, what is, uh, uh, you know, what is uh, sentience. And it's, uh, it's so well done. It is heartbreaking. And it is so real. It feels so real. Um, the reason I said uh, that this came at the exact right time, I was going through a breakup, breakup of my own, and it really wrenched out the emotions out of me and really helped me a lot, actually, during that whole process. And it's such a, a beautiful story, and uh, Phoenix is amazing. He does an amazing uh, performance. And, uh, and of course, the, the voice of uh, Samantha is Scarlett Johansson, so uh, who can ask for better? Originally, she was going to be, uh, I believe, Samantha Morton. Yeah, Samantha Morton was the voice who uh, did it on set with uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, and then uh, Spike Jones realized that it just wasn't working for some reason, so he brought in Scarlett Johansson. But it's so well done. And the, the future that is portrayed is not this, you know, it's not the Blade Runner world. No. It's a world that could absolutely exist right now. I have to say that I don't think this is a runner-up. I think this absolutely would belong somewhere on our list. I think this is is easily one of the best science fiction movies of the last 20 years. Yeah. And it has a moment in it, a, a revelatory moment that is such a gut punch. I know exactly and, what uh, it is. And I, I, when I was watching this film, I was so with this movie and this moment comes Normally, I'm ahead of movies usually because we've seen so many films. You're you're for the most part ahead of the plot, and you just allow it to. This has that that moment, Darren. I didn't see coming. Yeah, and I felt you know I I really do believe that all the great movies make you as an audience. You're the protagonist. Yep, and you're with the protagonist, and you're and I was you're feeling Joaquin, what they're feeling. Yeah, and Joaquin Phoenix, like you said, is so good in this movie. I was Joaquin Phoenix. I'm like I'd fall in love with an operating system. That's okay. Sure. 
you know, and, and I was so with this movie until this one moment where I don't, I'm not going to say what it is, but yeah. I, 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 I like, I'm like, oh, yeah. Physical I mean, I, pain. I, physical pain, physical pain. And I, the fact that this movie is able to do that, you know, and, and it's, it's so astonishing. well done. It's astonishing. astonishing. And it's, it's, oh my God, this, I cannot say enough good things about this movie. I, I, I love that you picked this because man, and this is a film that a lot of people don't think of as a science fiction movie, but I think it's one of the most, one of the most relevant of all modern science it's, fiction films. It's the perfect, it's the perfect example of science fiction. I mean, it's, we don't have taking... a, children of men, Gattaca, never let me go her. I mean, we've had some really great timeless science fiction films that aren't overtly flashy. Yes. So they don't, they don't get the kind of love they deserve, but man, dude, wow. This movie is terrific. Darren, I thought you were going to pick The Abyss. I was surprised. The Abyss isn't science fiction. That could happen. <laughs> the, the Abyss isn't science fiction? Yeah, it, it, did, it, it, did happen. it did happen. It did happen. Oh, I see. It's a documentary. <laughs> it's a documentary. Okay, well, that brings us to, for honorary mention, Rob Burnett. Well, of course, you know, on this list, we, we what do we have? Heavy Metal? Yeah. As an animated film? Like, that's it? I mean, there's going to be, by the way, we're going to get a lot of people going, oh, my God, you've given up. Well, where's Fantastic Planet? I don't know. It no one's going to say that, Rob. Just uh, I'm, I'm, saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying it. But uh, Fire and ice. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. obviously, I mean, this to me, you know, I credit this in a way. It's 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 the Blade Runner of animation. And it was inspired by Blade Runner. But this is, of course, 1988's. Akira. Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Streamline Pictures presents a state of the art adventure. Akira. Based on the manga that's sitting right here, I have all of it. It's the most, it's incredible, incredibly dense. Um, but it, it is a distillation that, by the way, if you haven't read the manga and you like the movie, please read the manga because it's it's a thousand times more interesting than the movie. But the movie is one of the great, again, one of the great visions of, of the future, but it deals with what does it mean to be human and what happens when mankind starts delving into the powers of of the mind and powers that we weren't necessarily or were not ready to harness and yet of course it, it the same things that michael crichton touched on when he wrote jurassic park 
this movie deals with government conspiracies and revolutions and political systems and control and um, tribalism and teenage gangs and drugs. And it has so much going on in it. And it's one of the most, like I, I, I've never seen, when I, when I first saw this movie, I'd read about it, but I hadn't seen it. I hadn't read the manga. It was the very first time I went to Comic-Con in the summer of 1988. And I was there and it, you know, in downtown San Diego. And the one thing that I bought was this movie on Japanese Laserdisc, which meant there was no English subtitles on it. And I watched it from the opening scene, you know, Neo Tokyo and a bomb goes off and nuclear apocalypse. And then all of a sudden you're in the future and there's this incredibly animated sequence where these gangs are fighting on the coolest motorcycles you've ever seen with this amazing score and I'd never seen light animated in mm -hmm. the way it was animated. I'd never seen animated light before. Not like this, not mm -hmm. neon lights, not lights from headlights, not lights in the city skies. And I, I, I was, was blown away by it. And I'm looking at this and the animation was incredible. And I watched two and a half or two plus hours of it completely perplexed. I had no idea what this movie was about. I kind yeah. of vaguely knew what it was about. And it wasn't until my college roommate and I at the time cornered a poor Japanese exchange student at USC and we dragged him home to our house. Against his will. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, we didn't. We, we sat him down and we would show him like every five minutes and we'd stop and be like, okay, what, chair. what's happening? What's <laughs> happening? And the poor kid was polite, you know, and he's like, who are these crazy Americans? Why did I agree to come to their house? But I think he was bemused by the whole thing and he was explaining it to us. And, and, you know, in a way it's kind of the animated 2001, you know, it's got, it's got this in, incredible conflagration that happens at the end. And uh, it, it, it's a movie about all kinds of different things and I love it. And I don't think it entirely works. To be I don't honest. know that it does either, but it's, but it is amazing. It was a huge influence on me, like in, just in terms of just in animation, in terms of what is possible, what can be done, kind of that marriage of visual and sound, visual and, and score. Um, and to your point about light, right? It's, it, it, you have to understand, dear viewer or, or dear listener, like what was happening when this movie was made, when it was animated, why that was special. It's like, you look at that now, you're like, oh, you know, it's like, okay, so what? It's like, yeah, they didn't have CG back then. There was no hand drawn over CG. There was like, I mean, CG obviously existed, but it wasn't a part, it wasn't a tool. In especially in animation. Especially in animation. So all of what you see, and this is why it's worth watching if like you're, you're, I mean, for so many reasons, but it, but in terms of looking what Robert's talking about with the animation of light, you know, is just realizing that frame by frame, somebody drew that. Like the attention to detail oh. in the turns, right? So there are artists, animators who go to school to learn nothing but how to draw a character turning properly, right? And you just look at that movie and it is absolutely, as a, as a work of animation, it is seamless as hand-drawn animation. And there was nothing like it at the time. Um, and, and frankly, there hasn't been a hell of a lot like it since. No. I, I, in fact, I, I, it's difficult for me to imagine like what else there has, there has been that's just been that, that sort of weird and crazy um, and interesting um, and just such a you know, sensory overload. 
and the direction, the shot yeah. choices, the framing. I mean, my God, live action. And I have to say, you know, it's cinematic as hell. You, you think back to the first Matrix. The first Matrix was heavily influenced by by anime. This was definitely a huge influence on the first Matrix in terms of shot choices and the action. I mean, I, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the action in this film, you know, the, the, the motorcycle chases and the car chase, whatever. I mean, it, it, the action in this movie is incredible. It's so well done. Whether and it's if you're flying a fan of uh, sewers, oh, an animation uh, and you aren't listening to uh, Ashley's show with uh, Steve Melching, Cartoon Bar Room, you should check that out weekly every Saturday morning, wherever you listen to Inglorious Trexperts. It's a terrific show about animation and uh, anime. So um, check that out if you want to hear more about animation. But Rob, I was surprised because... I, I thought you were all too predictable. I, I thought, but I was wrong because, of course, I thought you were going to uh, extol the virtues of a much underappreciated film that you're a huge advocate for, which, of course, is um, the Postman. <laughs> well, okay. The Postman is is obviously based on on the novel by by David Brin. Uh, it is the it's it's. Were you with me, Mark? When we saw it. At, Warner at the Brothers? Steve Ross Theater at Warner Brothers? Yes. yes. We okay. thought it was going to be a huge hit. So so I have to say, one of the things about The Postman, we saw The Postman at the Steve Ross Theater, and Kevin Costner himself came out on the stage, and he said, he was so excited, and he said, I only wish that I could be part of the audience right now watching this movie for the first time. Yes, he did. And he was so, you know, and I'm like, oh, I can't. And he delivered. And I have to say, I I love the Postman. You know, it is it is his follow up to Dances with Wolves. It is a widescreen epic post-apocalyptic slice of Americana. It is it is a story about an America I can't even imagine ever existing again, where the United States postal system becomes the force that unites a the glue, the glue that unites a fragmented and destroyed population. I mean, I think watching it now, people will say it's poppycock, but I love this movie. First of all, Will Patton, who never gets enough love. Will Patton's one of our great character actors of all time. He, he's 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 the villain. He's the Lord Humongous of this movie. <laughs> he's he's the evil evil general, whatever. The, or the, he's like a Xerox salesman that rises up the ranks and becomes the leader of the new the new republic, the fascist republic of America, or whatever. And and uh, Kevin Costner inadvertently finds the mail, dresses as a mailman to use the use the mail to get his way into a, a fort to get fed and, and to survive another day. Um, this movie has romance. It has patriotism. It, it has, has the American flag. It has it has Tom Petty. You have mail. It has Tom <laughs> Petty playing himself. Weren't you famous at one point? Nah, you know, that was another life. I mean, this movie is so bonkers and so much fun, and I just love it to death. But I, you know, if only it had urine drinking, it could be as good as Waterworld. Oh, well, right. it was definitely, you know, that era from, you know, after Waterworld, you'd say he thought he'd stay as far away from science fiction as possible. And then but he does no. the postman. So go figure. OK, so that's uh, Rob's pick uh, for honorary mentions, which brings us to Ashley. OK, Um so my pick, uh, my my honorary mention, 
um, is uh, is a movie that uh, was the it was the follow up for the uh, the the director of uh, of a film that 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 I didn't see coming at the at the time when I saw it and thought it was amazing, and then he did this and I thought it was amazing, and then a lot of things happened that were bad, but. Um, Alex Proyas, uh, who was who had previously directed The Crow, um, which had taken me completely by surprise, uh, which was the sort of Brandon Lee's last movie because he died on set. It was very tragic. Um, but who was this amazing uh, visual stylist um, who like who had a very like if you go back and you kind of look at his stuff, it's funny. We were just talking about Akira and talking about the influence of animation on um, what's happening in, in live action. And I think Alex Proyas very much uh, reflected that, like both in The Crow and in this film, uh, 1998's Dark City. Now, look, Dark City is a is a beautiful movie. I love the score for this movie. I love like how insane this movie is. I remember the trailer. The trailer had not a line of dialogue. It was all just kind of the, the music and these very arresting visuals and this very scary shot of this little bald kid in like a trench coat and a like a derby hat and he's got a knife and he's dragging it along the wall. And I remember just thinking just how insane this movie looked. And it is insane, except it's not insane in any of the ways you expect it to be. The, the premise of the film is that uh, a character wakes up um, in the middle of realizing that reality is being changed around him. And what he discovers is that reality is basically changed almost every day um, by these aliens who are using humanity, experimenting on us to find the secret of our individuality, subtly or not so subtly changing our lives every day, that the life this man uh, played by Rufus Sewell woke up into was the life of a serial killer who in the investigation of his life discovers all of this. And look, as crazy as this movie is just on that score, right? Cause you've got like these strangers who like, who are these aforementioned bald dudes, like who they're like, very wear creepy. These, they're very creepy. These like just wear these black hats and the black coats and they just all talk like this. And they, you watch them like shift reality around you. Again, this is way before Dr. Strange uh, or Inception, right? They have these amazing reality altering- Or the powers. assignment bureau. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just something about them that you just, you cannot take your eyes off of them. And, you know, and it's, uh, I think it's William Hurt plays a cop in this, but, you, but it's, he's like after Rufus Sewell and kind of putting all this together on his own, they end up teaming up. Um, Kiefer Sutherland plays this batshit insane scientist and you learn why he's batshit insane. But the thing that kills you, the thing that like, you just don't see coming. And I kind of don't want to tell you what it is, except I will, I will not tell you what it is, but I will tell That's you about the, the moment. There is a moment when someone takes a hammer to a wall. And in that moment- You have to watch the director's cut though for that moment. No, you don't, because I saw that in the theater. Oh. <laughs> when you like, when you see like what's out, it, what what's beyond I the kind wall? Kind of explain it to you in that weird. The theatrical version gave you that weird Thanks, paragraph at the beginning. The yeah, yeah, but not really. Not really. And see, now you got Siri going. Okay, thanks, wow. Siri. Thank you, Siri. Stop it. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, 
So for such geeks. all I will say beyond that is that uh, that Roger Ebert actually on the DVD, if you get the DVD, I guess it's also on the blue, like has this awesome commentary um, on this film. Um, it is absolutely worth your valuable time. It's beautifully made. It's really well written. It's like it's just the the performances. It's just they're just like these. Everybody has this little existential crisis that you fully believe like and it asks you these big questions but in these very personal ways about the things that we become we become attached to and why you know and do they mean anything to us if somebody can just change them at all but if we feel them isn't that enough to make them real and because we feel it with the characters the the movie really works um it's just great uh and um i i can't recommend it highly enough well, anybody who's familiar with uh, my role on the 430 Movie Podcast will know that I'm one uh, who, uh, why name one when you could name 22 films, <laughs> but I'm not going to do that today. Uh, uh, I, I am going to say I, I was, um, I was toying with Michael Radford's 1984, which I think is an exquisite film. And for those of us who uh, were counting down the years to 1984 and reading the George Orwell book in school, it's a really spectacular adaptation that I think was released in 1985 or 1986 uh, with um, John Hurt and, and, and the last uh, performance by Richard Burton um, and Susanna Hamilton. It's a really, really smart adaptation uh, of, of it. But um, I, instead, I'm going to go with a film. Here's my question. If a film isn't on streaming, does it really exist? No. If a film isn't on Blu-ray. Does it really exist? My question is, was this film a figment of my imagination? Does it really exist? Because it is nearly impossible, nearly impossible to find evidence that this film existed. Unless, like Rob and myself, you have uh, the DVD tucked away from 20 years ago and, uh, and realize, oh, indeed, there was a or film. Or the German Blu-ray. Or the German Blu-ray. Which, uh, and, and, and it is so hard to, to find this film. Uh, and yet, uh, even at the time, $41 million movie tanked at the box office came from the pedigree of uh, James Cameron, directed by Catherine Bigelow. I'm talking about Strange Days. Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wired tripped? You ready? This is not like TV, only better. This is life. It's a piece of somebody's life. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? The forbidden fruit. Straight from the cerebral cortex. I mean, you're there, you're doing it, you're feeling it. Are you beginning to see the possibilities here? I am your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. If it's got something to do with the water, sooner or later it washes up on your beach. Fan mail from some flounder. <laughs> the dark end of the street. How do you like it now? He records it all. Everything. And gives it to you. Why me? There's more to this whole thing than you think. Give us the tape right now. <laughs> you don't know how high up the food chain this thing goes. You know what this tape could do if it got out. I see the world opening up and swallowing us all. 
This is conspiracy paranoia. The issue isn't whether you're paranoid, Lenin. The issue is whether you're paranoid enough. No more games. Whatever's going on, you have to get out of here now. Get him out. This tape is a lightning bolt from God. It can change things, things that need changing before we all go off the end of the road. It'll be an all-out war, and you know it. No! Well, maybe it's time for a war. Oh man, cheer up. World's gonna end in 10 minutes anyway. tell you i remember loving the film but it's been a long time since i watched it so i tried to seek it out and had a very difficult time but i did find a youtube uh, video where um uh, uh the um commentators were talking about uh great movies you've never heard of and rob this is what's so funny i, I watch it and they said well we never heard of this film until we read an article in a magazine called Sci-Fi Universe. Nice. <laughs> which said that it was an, un, an unsung masterpiece. And so we sought it out. Now, I have to uh, laugh because, of course, Sci-Fi Magazine was a, a, a magazine that I was editor of for Larry Flint, uh, that Rob Burnett was an editor at large, a contributing editor, and frequently wrote some of our most engaging commentary. I believe it was Rob who wrote those words that, uh, in, in Sci-Fi Universe. So it's so weird. It was so weird to watch this as they were going on and talking about how Sci-Fi Universe uh, uh, convinced them to, to seek out the movie and apparently uh, love the film as much as we do. This is a really intriguing film. It was made a few years before what everyone was really concerned about. Uh, uh, the New Year's Eve uh, 1999 which would usher in a new era, 2000. Remember things like the, what was it called? The millennium bug. Everybody was worried. Everybody thought the Y2K. world was going to come to an end. Y2K was going to come to an end. It was a, it was a big deal. The only thing that came to an end was, uh, I think, Rob's single days as a bachelor, if I recall. <laughs> um, wasn't that when you got married? In uh, Vegas? I got married on the true millennium, 2000, 2001. There you go. Okay. So, um, but A Strange Days is a beautiful looking film with amazing performances from uh, Ray Fiennes, who had just won an Oscar uh, for um, his work in Schindler's List, uh, Angela Bassett, who had just come off, uh, uh, you know, her uh, amazing performance as Tina Turner and what does love have to do with it? And um, of course, Michael Wincott doing the Michael Wincott thing with I can't talk that deep. Uh, and Philo um, Gant, the record producer. Not to be confused with Michael You Wins know, Juliet Lewis. And yeah, not to be confused with Mitchell Gant, the guy who stole Firefox. And uh, <laughs> um, which is not to be confused with Foxfire starring Angelina Jolie. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And uh, <laughs> um, so, so it's a really remarkable film that would um, sort of uh, anticipate developments in uh, VR 
and augmented reality, but it had a lot to say about the world of the 90s because this was post-riots LA and um, there were some, uh, you know, obviously uh, in the wake of uh, uh, Rodney King and uh, the OJ verdict um, and uh, there, there was a lot of questions about the LAPD and, and, and how they were conducting themselves and all this stuff is baked into uh, Stranger Things. And in a way, even though the, the hardware is Strange very days. dated. The ideas behind Strange Days are, are still as relevant uh, today as they were uh, back in the 90s, uh, in a way, sadly. But it's a really bizarre, um, beautiful little film. Um, and, uh, you know, Catherine Bigelow is such a visual stylist, you know, starting with her uh, amazing uh, debut with The Loveless and then later with Near Dark, um, films like Point Break, um, and Strange Days, uh, even though it was under underappreciated at his time and continues to be unappreciated today, uh, is, is a film that I think has some big ideas, some, some great set pieces, some really nifty sci-fi, and it's my honorary mention for our top 101 greatest sci-fi movies of all time. Well, dude, as you know, I mean, I remember I went to a screening, I think we all did, because of Sci-Fi Universe, we went to the Fox lot. Yeah. And, and saw this movie before it opened. And I was just blown away by it. And we are Paul and you and uh, I we were talking about because it felt to me so incendiary after the L.A. riots, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it was all about police corruption. And and and, you know, it, it, it was all about turning the, the, the millennium turning, you know, and it was it was five years before the year 2000 rolled around. And and it created. The, the 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 night of uh new year's eve 1999 turning to 2000 in the film right which was weird <laughs> to then actually <laughs> they did it they did it for real and the performance is great but also you know it's it's also about a man who's who's lost his love you know who's been taken in by this corrupt it's very much an la story like you're you fall in love with some mm -hmm. girl and then she was looking for success if she's an actress or a musician and she falls in love with a svengali like producer and you can't get over her and in this case you have the you can record your memories so anybody can play back your memories as if they're happening to you and it, it had this great and 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 our main character is is a dealer he pays people to like go have sex with other people and then you can play back. It's very much like Brainstorm, Brainstorm. Douglas Trumbull's yeah. 1983 film, but this the squid technology they have, and there is a it's a love story, and at the same time you have. Angela but he's Fe like with a conscience. He won't sell uh, murder experiences or, no. or rape, or and of course that becomes kind of a key part of the story. So it's I a think. noir science fiction love story. And then it also has Angela Bassett playing one of those most kick-ass female Total characters badass. ever. She is so, I mean, you, you, you gotta love her in this movie. The cast is great. The music, they have a lot of local bands and a lot of bands of the time. It has an incredible soundtrack. Which is also out of print, but fortunately we all have it. Yeah, it's, and it's what a, and it might, like you said, Mark, it's completely forgotten. I mean, it's really forgotten. And undeservedly so. And I hope now that we see films like The Abyss and True Lies, Cameron has finally gotten around to uh, signing off on um, uh, New Masters. They're finally going to get out in streaming and hopefully in physical media. I, I hope, you know, since Lightstorm produced Strange Days, that uh, Strange Days will see the light of um, 
uh, of a re-release as well. Yeah, Strange he's... Days and Solaris and True Lies and, and The Abyss are these are the Lightstorm movies that, for inexplicable reasons, are not available domestically in yeah. HD, at least on disc. Yeah, yeah, which is which is is crazy, and hopefully uh, something to soon be rectified. Okay, well, those are our honorary mentions, our special picks. You may want to seek them out. Which brings us now to number one and two on our countdown. Now you say, why is it a tie? Well, one film has the vote for number one of Darren and Rob. The other film has the vote of Ashley and myself for number one. The films, Robert, tell us what you and Darren are. Well, I think that that the number one film the number one science fiction film ever made that still to me is the number one science fiction film ever made was made by one of the great visionary directors of all time. Again, doing something that had never been done before. Maybe arguably has never been done since, Mm -hmm. but it is a film that truly it takes us, it takes us across literally billions of years of time and space. Um, It's all about, evolution, consciousness. It's about the cosmos itself, life itself. And it, 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 it asks the big questions. Who are we? What are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? And at the same time, what does it mean to be a human being now in a dehumanized civilization? And I'm, of course, referring to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Welcome to voice print identification. When you see the red light go on, would you please state in the following order, your destination, your nationality, and your full name. Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Thank you, you are cleared through voice print identification. Thank you. Quite frankly, we have had some very reliable intelligence reports that Quite a serious epidemic has broken out into Clavis. No, there have been some conflicting views held by some of you regarding the need for complete security. Something apparently of an unknown origin. However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. This is in fact what has happened. I'm really not at liberty to discuss this. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides, but unfortunately we didn't find anything else. It hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces. It seems to have been deliberately buried. Four million-year-old black monoliths have remained completely inert, except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Three weeks ago, the American spacecraft Discovery One left on its half-billion-mile voyage to Jupiter. The sixth member of the Discovery crew was the HAL-9000 computer. Everything is going extremely well. One gets the sense that he is capable of emotional responses. Well, hell, I'm dead about anything wrong. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. Look, Dave, I can't put my finger on it, but I sense something strange about it. Just a moment. Just a moment. Do you know what happened? I'm sorry, Dave. I don't have enough information. Made radio contact with him yet. The radio is still dead. Hello, hell, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore.
a movie. Now, oh, let me let me stop you there, because I want Ashley to tell us his pick or our pick for number one, and then we'll discuss it and see if anyone wants to change their mind or if it will in fact be a tie, which is the shitty way out. Okay. <laughs> and you know, it's, not, not, it's really not, not cool. That. It's going to ruin the whole countdown, but okay. Ashley, tell us what our pick for number one is. So our pick for number one was arguably uh, the first film to, well, uh, the first modern film uh, to truly inspire a franchise. Um, and, and not only inspire a franchise, but inspire franchises based on the franchise. Um, it was remade twice, uh, once, um, you know, very unsuccessfully, surprisingly enough, by, uh, by, by Tim Burton. Um, and then, uh, wait, who directed, who cares about the other remake? But it, it, it turned into a series of, uh, of films based on the 1968 classic, The Planet of the Apes. Can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. The words are Charlton Heston's. Get out a last signal! Go on, and we've landed! The world he finds out in the galaxy will challenge every idea you've ever had of civilization. A planet where man is the lowest order of living things, and the superior beings are apes. They build the cities, make the laws, the gods, and control the guns that hunt a race of lowly, terrified humans who run wild in the jungles, are caged in the prisons, and stuffed in the museums. 20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into Planet of the Apes. Pierre Boulle's finest novel since Bridge on the River Kwai. It's a world gone insane, an upside-down civilization that could not be real. Yes, a world of madness and terror. Man has no understanding. He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more. You did it. You cut up his brain, you bloody baboon! It did not end here. It ended in an episode so unpredictable, so shocking, that it made the horror which preceded it seem calm and gentle as a summer's night. A great many people worked long and hard to answer the question of what a civilization would be like where the evolutionary process had been reversed and apes were the superior species. Hundreds of technicians and the largest number of makeup artists ever assembled assisted the producers, the writers, the director, and the cast. Dr. Cornelius Roddy McDowell. Dr. Zira as played by Kim Hunter. Dr. Zayas is portrayed by Maurice Evans. And Nova by Linda Harrison. No! 
how the tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. You realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Eventually a kind of living death. Planet of the Apes, beyond your wildest dreams. You know, look, uh, if if you're looking for a uh, a movie that uh, that kind of puts makes puts the whole idea of the twist ending um, in science fiction front and center, uh, this is your film. Um, it's got big themes um, about just what makes people people, what separates us from the animals, literally. Um, you know, what have we accomplished literally? Uh, it's just, it's relentlessly smart, written by Rod Serling, partly written, it was co-written by Rod Serling, um, directed by Franklin Schaffner, uh, who did uh, Boys from Brazil, which I also love, which is technically a science fiction film, but like is also not. Um, and uh, it's just, it's fun, it's cool, it's smart, uh, it has great action, it has a terrific ending. Um, it has, you know, it's based on a novel and, uh, and it's, it is, I think, inarguably, uh, the, it should be number one on this list. And I, and I will say no, that without argue. telling you why, be, be, like, before, I, before yeah. I let you guys go out okay. and I just have to say one thing to correct, uh, um, I don't know what I screw up. Cause it's midnight. Go ahead. Well, yeah, <laughs> for you. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, I know the thin man didn't have Mego action figures and gold diggers of 1932, right. Uh, you know, didn't have a, a treehouse, but they were indeed franchises. It was not the first. <laughs> but cinematic. There's, a, there's also a little thing called James freaking Bond. Well, that's true. You're right. You so are totally right. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're right. <laughs> you're wrong. You lose. No, you don't lose because you <laughs> but, made great points about everything else. Okay. Hang on <laughs> a second. I I would like to point out the James Bond uh, series did have novels. So right. it wasn't, I mean, they were adapting. So did Planet of the Apes. So did Planet only, of the Apes. Only one, though. That's only correct. the initial yeah. novel, Paul so Dan. This is it's the 101 greatest novels of all time right. now, is it? Okay, so Rob and Darren, tell us year. why your pick, 2001, A Space Odyssey, is the greatest sci-fi movie of all why time. I wait in, I think Darren needs to wax rhapsodic. Oh, I will. And 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 no one can wax rhapsodic more about 2001. Than wax Mr. on, Dark wax me. off, Darren. Oh, wax on, wax we off. We need you to rap waxodic. Try that. Look, 2001 A Space Odyssey is the definitive science fiction film. It literally takes us from birth to death and beyond. Uh, It is, it could have been. Are you talking about the experience of watching it it or in the film? Please, Mr. Altman, I have the floor. It could have been called This Is Us because it takes a complete journey throughout the creation and uh, and uh, dissolution of humankind. And in terms of scope, there is no movie that is bigger in uh, reach and grasp than 2001. Um, it is basically in three Other than parts. Porky's. It is basically in three parts. Uh, we, it's uh, like the Lord. We learn, we learn about the uh, first formations of human uh you know homo sapiens and their encounter with a strange 
uh, alien object that uh, helps them survive. And it's interesting, uh, Rob, you were talking about the great questions that it uh, brings up. Uh, one of the big questions that in almost every scene is addressed is what is there to eat? Every scene has human beings eating and surviving. And it's, it's entirely- So does and Green. It's entirely the, uh, the monolith's job to teach mankind how to survive and how to eat. That's what he teaches the, uh, the primitive man. Uh, they learn how to eat meat and get stronger and survive. And, uh, you know, we see, uh, we see, uh, Dr. Floyd, uh, eating on the, uh, on the, uh, Orion ship. Uh, we see, um, them on the moon bus, uh, eating, uh, reconstituted poop sandwiches. Uh, and, uh, and we see them eating on the centrifuge and discovery. And even in the final scene in the hotel room, David Bowman is eating. So it's, it's a, it's a really subtle thing that every stage of mankind in this is eating something. And so it's, it's a question of survival. And I love Italian and so do you. That's correct. Um, <laughs> look, it, it asks some huge questions. It answers some of them, but it leaves the rest to the audience to figure out. And I think that is one of the, one of the things that makes it last so much in at least my mind is that you do most of the work when you're watching it and you are figuring out what you're being shown and why you're being shown. And it's miraculous like that. And even in, you know, here we are 50, 50 something, four years later, it has not been surpassed in terms of its effect, its design. The designs have not been uh, advanced on uh, in a believable way. They are still completely believable and it's uh it's miraculous well i'm really glad that darren explained 2001 to me because now i finally understand you finally it. understand um I, I i you know i have to say i'm not here to to bury uh 2001 because i love it and i believe it should be the second uh, uh number two on our list that earned that place it's a masterpiece um but i'll tell you why i think planet of the apes should be our number one film 2001 is a great film. It's a great film. There's no debating that. It's miraculous. Douglas Trumbull's effects. Stanley Kubrick was a genius. Um, it is a remarkable look into the future, now our past, but um, a, re a remarkable film. There's no question about that. Um, is it an entertaining film? Eh, not so much. Planet of the Apes, on the other hand, is an amazing film both in terms of Franklin Schaffner's direction, the production design, John Chambers' makeup effects, and it is wildly entertaining as well. It has it all. It, it, you know, people don't give Franklin Schaffner enough credit. You know, he did Papillon, uh, he, he's done, but, but Planet of the Apes is remarkable in terms of the way it's shot. Obviously, Jerry Goldsmith's score, which was ahead of its time, and superb and Charlton Heston's muscular performance. You know, it's no accident both these films came out in 1968, huh? It was a time of deep thinking, of, of, of um, uh, pondering 
what was going on social, socially and politically. 2001 may be about eating, but so is the Outback. Planet of the Apes <laughs> is about socioeconomic it, it, it does what all great science fiction does. It's about metaphor. It's about allegory. We're looking at even the apes are stratified by socioeconomic differences. The chimpanzees, the gorillas, the different cases. It, it, it creates such a fully thought out world. And when you think what Rod Serling, who, who is the Patty Chayefsky of Patty Chayefsky's time, and, <laughs> and, and, and what he accomplishes with, with such a singular silly premise. And if you read Monkey Planet, Pierre Bull's book, which is really interesting and also, uh, but it, it, you know, had it done a straight adaptation, it would be remarkably goofy. In fact, I mean, the animated series did it a little bit. Um, and uh, and it, it's, it's, a, it's goofy. Rod Sterling knew how to tell this story and it's audacious in its own way. I mean, when you look at this, no one talks for like, the first 40 minutes of this movie, basically. I mean, they're walking through the desert and, you know, and, and, and just, and the, the amount of times it pulls the wool out from under you with the forbidden zone. And obviously that ending, which is one of the most spectacular um, uh, surprise um, twilight zone, and for lack of a better word, endings of all time. You mean I, the I one where, where Fox home video put the photo of it yeah, on their, yeah, 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 on their yeah. VHS box? Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Well done, marketing uh, department. Unbelievable. As though nobody knew, you know, everyone must know the ending. We can just put it Maybe on like our video ha- box. Having a shot at Darth Vader holding baby Luke. You know, for years, I've tried to keep this a secret from my kids. So when I finally show them the movie, they'll be surprised. And, you know, it's kind of like it yet. It's kind of like when I walked into the uh, Academy Museum and one of the first things you see is a rosebud on fire yeah. like from the end of Citizen Kane. I'm like, and, and when they sent me a questionnaire, they said, oh, what did you think of the, um, what did you think of the museum? I said, well, I thought it was pretty good, except for the fact that the ending of Citizen Kane is on your welcome screen, which I mean, <laughs> not everyone's seen the end of the movie. You're ruining the end of like the greatest movie of all time. But other than that, it was a pretty good, good experience. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, that that's, you know, not to diminish 2001 anyway, because of course it's it's this spectacular film. But uh, my pick for number one, and Ashley's pick for number one, is Planet of the Apes. I gotta, I ha- I have to respond to that because yeah, me too. It, we, we both will. But I think that uh, your argument of it's more entertaining than 2001 is completely eradicated by our choice of putting Star Trek: The Motion Picture above Wrath of Khan. So, quid pro quo. There we are. No, I, I think I, I, your I apple go. does not look like an orange. Look, I would also <laughs> like to say that um, Planet of the Apes is a little, it, its allegorical nature is not exactly uh, asking the viewer to do a lot of deep thinking and reach deep inside the soul of themselves to ponder the great questions of the infinitude of the cosmos. It is a movie that is very much steeped in uh, considerations of the day. It is not something that's going to expand your imagination, your horizons, your your considerations of where we are in the universe. I love Planet of the Apes, but it's an allegorical movie about race relations, about how we treat each other as people on this planet right now where 2001 asks the questions, where are we going to go? What is out there? 
and what's when for we, lunch? And when we confront, <laughs> well, Darren, I can't, I can't deny that. But what what is going to happen when or if no when I'll say when I won't be alive probably, but when James Webb Telescope, please tell me something different, please work. Uh, but uh, when when we are confronted with an intelligence that is so far beyond our understanding, will we be able to rise up? Will we be able to confront those great questions? And I think 2001 is a film that is inherently optimistic because at the end of the day, it does say that humanity can step up. You know, even though the aliens bring you there and Dave Bowman is clearly not having a fun time as he goes to the Stargate. But when he gets there, he doesn't shy away from whatever it is that, and we leave that up to your interpretation. A banquet. But he... he <laughs> The he does step up the and buffet. If he, it's a Vegas buffet. <laughs> if he if he has to go through his life from birth to death, from the beginning of time, the beginning of mankind's evolution to the end, whatever it all means, the fact that he becomes the star child at the end of the film proves that humanity is able to transcend whatever awaits us out there. And I know in the book he sets off the nuclear devices, whatever. But in the movie, there is. It, it ends on a ve very hopeful note, whereas Planet of the Apes ends on a note it's that a we're downer. doomed. We are doomed. Yeah, we're going nowhere. We're going nowhere alone, fast, just like so in Streets of Fire. That alone, two thousand and one deserves the top spot because it is inherently optimistic about the future of mankind. I rise and rebel. So first, uh, to the merits of, of Planet of the Apes, and it's weird that we're sort of almost having this debate about like about merits and debits, but because um, I know that everybody here loves both of these movies or, or at least appreciates both of these movies or we wouldn't even be having the goddamn love conversation. Both. Come on now. But, but 2001 is better. I will tell you that the, to me, um, Planet of the Apes, the moment that defines that movie for me is not the Statue of Liberty. It's just not. It's the moment that Charlton Heston mm -hmm. finds his buddy, his corpse, stuffed in a goddamn museum on display. You cut out his brain, you bloody baboon. <laughs> oh, this is yeah, the other was, one. This is the one who was killed. Yeah, this was Dodge, right? So landing right. got lobotomized. Like, right. But but the, uh, the that image haunted me mm. when I saw it because it was so fundamentally dehumanizing and so fundamentally established the stakes of the situation um, that, that Taylor, that Charlton Heston's character was in. And you talk about wanting to be with the protagonist and feel what the protagonist feels, feeling that horror, feeling that rage, feeling so alone, right? On this world that suddenly feels so alien, that values things so differently um, than we like to think that we value them. But even at the same time, you know, there are characters around him who see the world the way he does, right? It's just that the, the thing that's, that's amazing about Planet of the Apes is, the, is almost the diversity of opinion among the apes. Plus, as Trevor Slattery pointed out, it's how they trained all those monkeys to ride the horses, right? How do they do that? We don't know. That was crazy. Um, no, but look, it's, it's, it, but it's, it's moments like 
that, right? It is like, it is this, and it is, you're right. It is, in some ways, it is the opposite of the intent of 2001. It is stripping us down to our core humanity, except that I would argue that the Charlton Heston never truly lets go of his humanity, right? He never truly loses that. And that to me is just as hopeful. And it's, look, it's when you get to that point where you blew it up, you know, it's just that moment works, not because it's just this intellectual switch where you go, oh, wow, the whole time he was on earth, crazy. Like, it's because we've experienced his rage and his sadness and his desperation and then the understanding that we did it to ourselves. And you think Rob, right. of all people, would appreciate the fact that Charlton Heston ends up with the most beautiful woman on right. the That's planet hopeful. in perpetuity. But I got to tell you, it also has two of the most visceral, impactful scenes in the history of cinema, which, of course, are when Charlton Heston gets caught in the net and he has that cathartic moment where he finally can speak. He says, get your hands off me, you, you damn, damn dirty apes. I mean, yeah. and, and then on a more subtle level, there is that brilliant scene where they find the doll. Mm-hmm. And, and and say to Dr. Zayas, here we have proof. Why would, a, um, a, you know, an ape make a, a human doll that talks? And you realize that Maurice Evans, uh, Dr. Zayas, has known all along that the religion, is, the whole religion is bullshit. It's based on a lie. Right. And he says, no one will ever see that doll. And, and basically, you know, they, they thought they were trying to convince him. But ultimately, he knew all along and was just going along. It's so freaking great and it t- speaks to the hypocrisy of religion it's so great all yeah, earth all also, earthbound concerns yeah where's well we're cos- on earth where's the I, cosmic wonder what that but it also it, it also that, that moment to me it, the, the fact that dr zayas knew right and that he hid that information just sort of speaks to the fact that the apes weren't a monoculture right that that, that understanding that information the shock of he can speak right? It's just such a big deal. It's such a big deal. You know, it, it, it elevates the apes, right? It actually shows the potential of, of evolution. And I will say this, right? Because on the 430 movie, uh, I, I forget what episode it was, but you were talking about like, you know, guilty pleasures, I think. But I think like one of the, the things that we discussed in that episode was, um, you know, movies that we secretly don't love. Um, and I admitted that 2001 was, uh, was that film for me. Now, I will say that I fully appreciate everything you boys are saying about 2001 as a film. Right. I admire it as a film. I understand its importance. I am in awe of the beauty of the filmmaking um, and Kubrick's power as a director. I get all of that. But I also find it to be an incredibly cold intellectual exercise that has almost, for me, like no dramatic value other than how I engage it intellectually, which is fine, except that as a, as a film goer, that's not what I want. And it's not about stupid entertainment either. Because obviously Planet of the Apes is not stupid entertainment. It's incredibly smart entertainment. Um, but it's smart entertainment that you can feel, that you viscerally like understand the world that's been created. Rather than, oh, wow, that's really interesting i mean look man the whole eating motif thing is fucking cool i think that's great i actually find that amazing but i'm also like okay <laughs> you know what i mean I, so I that's urge, what i urge you two fellas 
not to make the same mistake that the Academy did in 1969 by awarding the uh, Academy Award for makeup to Planet of the Apes uh, because they didn't realize that the apes in 2001 weren't real. See, this is the difference. Don't think of it as as an entertainment. Think of it as an amazing achievement. And as such, it needs to be number one. Well, now, hang on a second. I I, I must disagree with my esteemed colleague here. What are you doing? Stop that. (laughs) Because now, hang on. (laughs) I'm only going to say this, that the fact is the makeups in 2001 did not have to do the heavy lifting that the makeups in Planet of the Apes had. Of course they did. Of course they did. They had to look absolutely real. They had to feed baby chimpanzees for fuck's sake i agree i agree well they, they look better than salminio's gorilla in escape for the planet yeah, but they didn't have to make sure. you they didn't have to make you care. and there weren't girth and there, and there weren't in trading places and there weren't goofy uh rubber mask uh gorillas in the background going well that was that was well, that was in beneath that, that, that was, was a no that was in Come planet on, of the apes no. they're in there look look you can't you cannot don't take away from john chambers work now come on now i'm not he got the. They made Academy humans Award. credibly don't, in the age. Don't take the yeah. don't take the achievement of Stuart Freeborn lightly. I will not. No, and I Stuart do Freeborn not. did a great and job. I, but I John also Chambers want to point out better. that the, the ape no, culture, it wasn't better. That's what I'm saying. The it ape wasn't culture better. and Planet of the Apes, <laughs> and neither is Planet of the Apes. I just want to say the ape culture and Planet of the Apes was very stratified. You had the the soldiers. The worker class. Yeah. You had the scientists, and then you had the uh, the science chimpanzees, uh, 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 the uh, the aristocratic the society, the administrators, uh, as as exemplified by Doctor Zayas. But I I just want to say that that I think the orangutans. I think at the end of the day that for me, two thousand one is a movie that has resonated with me throughout my life. Whereas I love Planet of the Apes. It's wildly entertaining. I've enjoyed it my whole life. But as I grow older, I see that that Planet of the Apes means less to me because I get it. I understand what they were doing. I appreciate it. It it still means something today. But the fact is, I am still, as I get older, looking forward to what 2001 has to offer me, which is hope that there is a cosmic infinitude out there that I can still be a part of. Ashley, I think I got the, I think the the, the thing that'll convince Rob. Okay, Rob, what had better toys? Planet of the Apes or 2001? You got to give it up to Planet of the Apes. Okay. We never got them, but there's better toys. We never got them. There you have it. Hang on a second. Planet of the Apes Treehouse. Come on. The toys Um, coming out now. Oh, now. The 148th scale Ares 1B model now. Yeah. The, 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 the toys that we're getting from 2001 now are what I dreamt of when I was a young boy. When there are six scale, perfect uh, Dr. Zayas uh, figures, then come back and talk to us. Oh, uh, man. I, I have the argument that will convince Rob. We already tried Linda Harrison. Damn it. But it is the argument that should convince Rob. As you get older, you still want Linda Harrison. And yeah, become but, part of that cosmic infinity. But here's the thing: I would feel bad imposing my own sexual needs on her because she's such a an innocent. You know, I can't. I you know, I couldn't. Who said I, impose, right? Oh, he would. 
Uh, no, I wouldn't. I, I want her to bring her own desires to the party. I couldn't. I, I'd feel like, you know, I I want to take care of her. I wouldn't want to ravage her. Well, there's something wrong with wanting to take care of. I, I know, but that's my whole thing. That's what Sharon has to is doing the whole movie. He's trying to help her. He's trying to help. That's her. right. No, I no he's, 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 he's trying to get her out of there, away from these 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 sadistic apes. These damn dirty apes. Okay, well, look, we've heard you've heard what Darren and Rob had to say. You, you heard what we have to say. We certainly encourage you to vote. We'll have it up on social. Uh, uh, but right now, I want to see if anyone's changed their minds after hearing the opposing views, or if this is going to be a tie. And uh, Darren, Rob, is there a change of heart on your part at all? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. No, Rob. No, no change of heart. Okay. What about you, Ashley? Have you been won over the 2001 argument? I totally have not. Yeah, neither have I. I got to tell you, I, I was hoping we could have. Uh, I, I was. I, I was hoping that Joe Manchin would would see the light and <laughs> and sign off on on this, but apparently, uh, you know, the the he's been he's been bought off. So I, it looks like we're going to uh, have to agree that uh, uh, number one is a tie. Between 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Planet of the Apes, 1968. And that concludes... 1968 is the winner. 1968 <laughs> is the real winner. <laughs> it's isn't, also... it, isn't it interesting that it's it, 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 we have to go all the way back to the 60s to find our number one films? Here? Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, look, there are a lot of great movies from a lot of different eras on this list. And if there's anything I'm most proud about looking back at this list is that, uh, you know, we have everything from silent films like Metropolis uh, to movies, you know, from uh, the fifties and sixties to the seventies and eighties to the nineties. I mean, it's very, uh, you know, to more recent films. I, I think it, we're, we're well, very represented. well represented list. And yeah. I've seen a lot of these lists over the years and they, they tend to portray the, um, uh, the, the passions or, or, or the lack of, of knowledge of the people writing them, mm-hmm. they become very predictable. Yeah, and I think this list is anything but predictable. So, uh, and uh, I want to thank you guys for spending the last eighty-seven hours um, <laughs> with us, uh, uh, putting not only only uh, been the time seventeen spent, and a half, uh, putting this together and 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 coming to decisions. It was a, it was difficult because, of course, you're dealing with the 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 uh, opinions and and passions of four very different people with very different taste. Uh, and and uh, so I think the fact that we were able to land on the list we did up until uh, the very end is uh, a testament to the fact that we all can get along. And I, I'm deeply appreciative to uh, Ashley and uh, Robert for joining Darren and I here on the Trexperts for another great, great holiday special. And speaking of people that we're appreciative to, We'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the incredible accomplishment of Bill Ritter, who made us sound so great through all these, these episodes and integrated the clips. We want to thank our archivist and producer, Peter Holmstrom, who pulled uh, uh, some great material for the, um, for the podcast. And of course, our producer, Natalie Miscali, and uh, everyone, uh, and especially you, the listener, who stuck it out and listened to all these episodes and shared your opinions with us, which you can continue to do on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook. Let us know. Is Planet of the Apes your pick or 2001 A Space Odyssey? It's a tough one. I mean, as much as we uh, we debated it, it's a tough one. And speaking of debates, 
Get ready for the great debate between Darren Doctorman and Steve Asbell coming up as they debate the merits of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Also, we'll be doing a deep dive into the Bible of Star Trek Phase Two as we close out our Bible study. Yes, I did say Bible. Sorry. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, Little future B. episodes. And you'll find the four of us doing commentary on Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, which I'm sure many of you feel was a glaring omission from this very list. And you'll find out why when you listen to our commentary on Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. And of course, you can continue to listen to our audio commentaries on Trexpert's Briefing Room, an entirely different podcast. Rob's going to be dropping by to deliver his insights into the immunity syndrome. And I'm sure Ash will be back extolling the virtues of Deep Space Nine. And you can check out Peter and Lisa talking about episodes of Voyager and Enterprise, in addition to our insights into the original series and Next Generation. So uh, keep it tuned to Inglorious Trexperts and Trexperts Briefing Room all year long. You can watch Robert Daly on the Brunette Work and you can enjoy Dota Dragon's Blood again and again on Netflix. So second season dropping January 18th. There you heard it. You heard it here first. The second season drops January 18th, which is about when I think this episode is dropped. <laughs> Drop. <laughs> the, it's out now. As episode seven of our six-part series. And uh, so I think that's going to do it for us. Darren, anything you want to say before we wrap things up? Just that it's been a lovely year spending uh, with you, Mark, and uh, occasionally Ashley and Robert. And uh, let's uh, keep uh, uh, an open mind and open hearts as we uh, forge into 2022. And hopefully, my hope for the new year is that my knee starts to feel better before the next Star Trek convention in Las Vegas, as I continue to suffer from where that unfortunate accident I had as a child in <laughs> Vegas earlier this year. I'm looking forward to all. I'm looking forward to all leg. our adventures uh, in the coming year. Uh, and I hope we have lots of them. And I think we're going to have to go and break bread and have a good meal and celebration of 2001, as well as the beginning of 2022. And until next week, here on the Trexperts, we wish you to keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.